ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Welcome back. My hiatus is over and you are listening to a brand new episode of Hard in the Paint with David Grubb. Um, a lot has gone on in my time away, but I enjoyed it. I needed it. And I, I advise anybody else, hey, when this has been a long, tough year. So if you need to take a break sometimes, do it. Do it. Do it for yourself. And if you know somebody, um, a loved one who also needs to check in on them, please do so. And I'm thankful to this to my next guest as one of those people who checked in on me during my hiatus. Um, a friend who I have known for more than 25 years now. Jeez. I can't even believe it. 25 years. He met me when I was just a skinny freshman at Wake Forest University. And uh, we have our, our friendship has grown from just a dude who I saw occasionally to uh, someone that I, I consider a friend and also just uh, somebody who I, I lean on for advice at times as well. Um, he is an author. He is an activist. He is um, a renaissance man in a lot of ways. And um, he's just I, I don't have enough words to describe him. Um, my good friend, the author. Andrew Snorton. Andrew, how you doing today, man? Hey, good afternoon. At first, I thought my dad walked in the room because my dad is Andrew the second. I'm like, Dad, you made the trip down from Jersey. But um, <laughs> first off, thank you for your kind words. Thank you for allowing me to be on your platform and to all your your listeners and viewers. Seriously, during this now normal, I hope y'all are doing as well as possible. And the only thing I'll tell you all to keep it simple, just weather the storm. To keep it that simple, weather the storm. Brother, um, the reason that we got together, um, one of our mutual passions, and there are many, uh, is sports. And you came into this game a little bit later than I did. This was my path from jump. And I, I always had been following sports, always had been in this side of the business. But in the last few years, you've really gotten a lot more involved in it on, on multiple levels, co collegiate sports, professional sports. Talk to me about why that became um, more than just a passion, because we had always talked about sports together. We're both big baseball fans in particular, and we'll get into that. But why the transition for you to, to bring this into your life? That's a, that's a great question. Um, growing up, sports was always part of my life, uh, playing baseball, soccer, basketball. And then in high school, I, I lettered in soccer and I lettered in track. Now, don't ask me to run right now because I'll probably pull a hamstring out the gate. But I was always, sports was always something that was part of me from collecting baseball cards to all that type of stuff. It was a big deal for me. And I guess on the writing end, when I used to write for one of the online magazines, Examiner, I would do some spot sports duty. Like I remember covering the Atlanta Dream. Um, I did a feature on the tailgate culture based here in Atlanta for the Atlanta Falcons. So I did bits and pieces of it. I think what really helped me to take my writing in regards to the coverage or journalism skills or what have you really honestly started, it really renewed with the current media outlet where I have my television show with the status network. And as you and other people in media know, when you get that media credential, you're supposed to put it to use. And what I did was 
just to kind of walk you through what I did, honestly, is I already had the body of work of covering other events. So my first step was let me try this out with minor league baseball. And I, I explained what I was trying to do here, are preview examples of my work, things along those lines, and it just worked out. So covering the game and then covering that and understanding, you know, some of the particulars, my next step was to go ahead and let me try this for college football and everything worked out for me covering college football. Then I'm like, okay, so now I've got a template and people see you've got the, you know, the documented articles. I would do the lead-ins on my television show. And now it's like, let me go ahead and take it to, you know, to the next thing, hockey. Now, Today, obviously, the landscape's a little bit different. Now, I'm very fortunate, based on the coverage I did last year with our alma mater, Wake Forest, I actually have my ACC uh, media credential. It basically is virtual. So while I'm kind of basically like watching and analyzing, I still have access to like the photos, video, et cetera. So it's been a little bit different this year. And we understand like for the games, it's going to be local media as well as national that's first. So I'm kind of in that gray area, but I think the big thing is it was really, it really just came as an extension of the work I was already doing. And I'm like, I love sports. I would consider myself relatively knowledgeable, even though there's always something new that you learn. And um, that's really, you know, how that, how, how that really transformed. And here's where I, here's, here's where I am now. Now, how, now, see, I learned my way through the locker rooms the hard way. And there's those very bad experiences that I carry with me from figuring out the mm -hmm. politics of a locker room and how you become able to ask questions. People think it's a very egalitarian thing where you go in and you sit down and everyone who has a credential is mm -hmm. able to ask a question. <laughs> it don't work like that. Tell me, when, when did you get your first reality check as a sports reporter? My first reality check was the first college football game that I covered last year. Um, and it, and what I would do last year when I did my college coverage, because to me, I want to know a little bit of everything. So if I ever have to outsource something, I kind of know the, you know, the particulars. So last year when I do college football and, and some people, you know, can relate, get to the game hours before, you go ahead and do your pregame analysis, look at the trends, things along those lines. And I'd have either a combo credential or I'd have two credentials. So I would go down on the field and I would do photography the first half because I wanted to make sure I capture that. And part of it as a reporter is you're trying to see the game through different lenses. You're not just seeing it through the lens of the fan. You're trying to see it through the lens of the player, the lens of the coaches, etc. So being out there on field and really concentrating what you're doing, especially like that first game, I almost got run over. <laughs> I, I, I was sitting in the end zone and, and I'll tell you what, it was for the Wake Forest Utah State game and Sage Surratt on Wake's opening drive, great move. And I forgot how fast he is. And he's kind of like, he's like six, one and like 200. Like he doesn't necessarily look big, but he's coming at you like running a four, 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 five. And I'm like, okay, I'm behind this, you know, this broken dotted line <laughs> and almost got knocked the blank out. But, um, but, but, um, but I'll tell you what happened post game. And you go into the, you go into the media room and you figure that, you know, after let's say that, you know, the coach addresses, then it's pretty much whatever. But it was like, I'm like, 
that was really my awakening that you have to, for lack of a better term, you have to put your foot down. So the second time I was in there, I grabbed the mic first before everybody else. And I made it a point that, you know, I'd frame my questions. I know how I like to frame my questions. And I'll say one other thing on that. I also know that some people, most of the people in this business are pretty solid, but some are a little bit shady. And I know one person in particular, I won't name the outlet, but one person in particular lifted my question and someone else's question, put it in his article, never gave credit for it. So that individual is very fortunate (laughs) that I'm doing I've been there. And, And I'm sitting here like you took my question and you took everybody else's question and didn't credit it. So now you're framing as if you did, as if you did that. So um, you know, fast forward to this year when I'm using like the photos from the ACC media portal, I'm crediting from the media portal. So even if I don't have the exact photographer, you give credit where credit is due. So, but, but that was really that, that first game was my wake up call regarding college, you know, college sports, college football. I didn't really necessarily have that issue with minor league baseball or minor league hockey. Part of it. Very different. It's very totally, different. It's though. totally different. But I think I would say that football experience helped me. So moving forward, when I'm able to go back in person, when things obviously are safer, I know, let me, you know, stick to my template, do my research before the game. There are photographers I have relationships with, so I'll feel comfortable if they do the photography and send me the stuff. And as long as I can credit them, do that. And then go ahead and drop the hammer for post game. And, and I think, and, and it's like you said, you want to, you want to be genteel and respectful because everybody, you know, is there trying to, you know, get the, get the story, but every once in a while you, 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 you just professionally have to show people that you, that you can go there and you don't have to do it all the time, but when the time calls for it, you just go ahead and, and flag by term, hijack the mic, and you ask what you're trying to ask to get the story and the narrative you're trying to get. I've been in a lot of post games, and I've earned a reputation for being a person who asks questions that other people don't ask. Oh, really? Wait, yes. wait, that happens to you too? Yes. <laughs> so I'm that, you know, I'm proud of being that guy. I uh-huh. ask the most direct questions. I don't ask roundabouts. I don't, you know, I'm not a, I'm not here for the bite. I really want a story. Uh, you know, a lot of guys, you know, and I understand if you're somebody's on deadline, you're not here to, to, to wax poetic about something you're trying to get in and get out. But when you hear my questions and then you steal my story, we got a problem now because you knew where I was going with my line of questioning. You've heard it. And then you wrote my story. And it, especially when you see it come out, hours after yours does, and it's the same tone, using your quotes that you elicited from your questions. Yeah, so I've had to have a couple of those conversations um, with, with colleagues and like, look, you know, this isn't going to keep happening. You know, you, it's something, you do have to be territorial about this at times. And you, but you also can be very collaborative. Um, I have found so many people that I can work with in the business that are great sounding boards but it is very difficult and it's very difficult for us in particular. And I say that to, to listeners who don't as African-Americans, when you first come in, it is different because people a lot of times just aren't used to you being there and they're not sure why you're there. And it's, it's an assumption that other reporters are easy, are really quick to make as to whether or not you're really there to be covering something or if you just got a pass and that 
was always extra for me was in the beginning, having to keep showing people that I was a journalist and that I was there to do a job and that I wasn't some kind of hanger on who wanted to be in the locker room around players. It's like, I got a pass just like he has a pass, but you're treating me differently. And I think part of it is the way, you know, for me, I kind of, and I've gotten this a lot my whole life. I kind of look the part, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, flying home from school on break, people would ask me why I wasn't staying on campus for games. And I'm like, I'm going home. I don't play. I don't play for the team. I'm going home. But I I get for me, but you're a typical looking person. You know what I mean? You're not too tall, not too short. You're not, you know, you know what I mean? Like you look like a journalist would look. I'm I'm going to, I'm going to say this to that point. And in regards to it's different. Like when I look at the coverage of especially like the last year plus with the sports that I've done, um, starting off on the baseball end, the biggest thing is where you've got your regular beat reporters who are always doing that. Mm-hmm. So when they see somebody different, it's like, wait a minute, who are you? And I'll tell you like a true story when 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 I was in uh, Birmingham, when I was in Birmingham, and get there few hours for a game time. I do my pregame interview. Uh, great, great interview with Taekwon Forbes. Um, and we were just chopping it up. Like we just, we were just kicking it. So after that, I go and I look at the stat sheets, look and see, you know, who are the top prospects, who's trending things along those lines. So it was like about 15, 20 minutes before anybody even talked to me. So I'm sitting here, you know, bumping. I'm here focused on my stuff. And then when they finally talked and they asked me such a low-lying fruit question, I was like, there's one of two ways I can approach it. They're asking me this because they're insulting my intelligence or they're asking me to get some type of point of reference because they're not used to seeing somebody like me, especially when I'm getting there before they are. So after I squashed that like a grape and then we started talking shop and I was breaking down stuff without even looking up, they're like, oh, wow, you know, your material. I'm like, you know, I try to focus. I kept it middle of the road. I'm like, I just try to focus on being as prepared as possible. So if this is are some of the things I need to do, then that's what I'm going to do. And everything changed after that. Um, that was probably the only time I really got, I'll say challenge because I wasn't on the, I wasn't on the normal beat, but the other spaces, um, to be honest with you, like Chattanooga, they're like, come back whenever you want. And even when I was in Greenville, uh, the PR folks from, um, uh, the Charleston, um, I forget their, their mascot. They're like, you know, you need to come down to Charleston. So I, I think in general, you, you go in there, having a game plan and doing what research you can before. And then when you have those times pregame and whatever, do your studying, do your analysis and give, and sometimes I might focus more like for baseball, it was like, who are the top prospects? But I bounced as to who was trending, like who is having a good three game, four game, five game stretch. Um, So that way it's like, these are key people I've got to lock in on. Uh, Football is you, you'd still do the same type of thing. Who's tops at the depth chart? Mm-hmm. What's the history? Those types of things. And, and I'm sure you know this from your college football coverage. You kind of compile who you're going to talk with. And then for me, this is just me. I know that you, you never know who's reading your material. So I'm very I, – I operate in a certain lane with the types of questions I want to ask. I do want to ask questions about 
let's say thematically what you're doing, because I want to show, especially on the college level, these are young men from doing college football. They're a lot sharper than what you think. They're not just running around. They're not just relying on raw talent. They're really taking days at a time to study game film. They're really focusing on picking up traits and tendencies. So when I talk about it thematically, they can talk about, this is what we do procedure wise is what we end up doing. So people are showing, even if it doesn't always translate, it's not that these kids aren't trying to do. And then for me, as you mentioned earlier, there's, there's always narratives that you want to tell that other people aren't. So on the college football, and I would always ask a question, what's some advice you would give for the younger versions of you? Like who's like in high school, well, that's across the board, high school, middle school, elementary school. And one of the best, um, you know, pieces I got on that end, I'd have to say, honestly, like players like a saying Bassey, who's now off the Denver Broncos, Jasir Taylor from my hometown in Jersey. Jasir was point blank. He's like, look, they don't care if you play ball. You got to go to your, you got to go to class. And even him making that, he's, you know, elaborate a little bit more, but even with him making that statement, could be a seed planner for that kid who thinks because of their talent, they don't have to do anything else. You still have to put in, you know, the work in the classroom. You still have to be the best representative, best representative, first off of you and your family, let alone your school or your team. So when you have people dropping nuggets like that, that other people aren't going to report and you can draw that up to your own conclusions, it's showing these folks do get it. They do understand. They are trying. They do have a work ethic. They do have some sense about them. And in some respects, they have a lot more insight than people our age, if not older. So um, again, anytime, and, this, and you can use this universally, do the research you can so you have a working idea so you don't fall into, you're not going to be able to account for everything, but there's some things you can account for. Do your homework and do your research before you step into the arena. Sound like gang star right here, step into the arena. Uh, the second thing is, you know, like to your point with Greg Lloyd, part of it is rapport building. So when they see you and they know where you're coming from, you can get a lot more. But another thing to me, and like you kind of indirectly mentioned it's tough talking to a player after a loss. It's, it's difficult. You have to give them that cooling down period. Um, and there's times like from baseball covered a loss. Um, I was fortunate with my hockey coverage and fortunate with my college football coverage. Every time I covered, they won. So I'm like, hey, you need to have me keep reporting. But I think, you know, we still have to remember there's still people. And just like we go through the wide range of emotions when things don't go our way and we might have that moment where we're not well put together, I'll just be blunt. We cuss and fuss and act a fool. Guess what? If people have been ripping and running all day and day and you've been taking a beating or you got hit by a pitch, you got spiked, you got your teeth knocked out at a hockey fight, you're probably going to need a few minutes to decompress. And then you want to keep – you have to watch your tone. And that's why – I know how I want to do my questions where it's, you know, really kind of politely picking their brain where they can reflect and analyze and they're already quote thinking ahead to what adjustments they'll make next time. And it's never to insult somebody's intelligence. Or their effort or their, you know, like I think I come from the places I will never question an athlete's integrity as a person, their effort on the field 
or the court, whatever, because that's not for me to, I can't judge their internal workings. Mm-hmm. If the coach says it, if the player says it, I can quote it, but I'm not ever going to assume it. I can say someone played poorly. I cannot say they didn't try. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so for me, what this leads me to you, you've been an author for other books. You've mm-hmm. done so much on the community level. How much did that help you when you're writing about athletes to humanize them more? Because one of the things that I got into this business to do was make sure that we weren't treating athletes as racehorses, that we were talking about them as human beings and and understanding what goes into failure, just like it does for the rest of us. There is a psychology of losing. There is an understanding of improvement and all these things that they're going through on a daily basis from practice to film sessions to the games themselves. I, I've been around a team. Look, I covered the Pelicans when they lost. They were in the worst losing streak in the franchise's history. It, it, people think it's annoying to watch it. Live that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Live that. The, when I covered Wake Forest for, mm-hmm. as, a, as an intern, they were in the midst of a 1-11 season. You know how bad it was at that, yeah, at that time? Like they only won, like, the times of the day, morning, noon, and night. Like, people forget those times. So, so, that, so, so learning how to deal with people in those situations and, give, and not strip them of their humanity further because they've already gotten it taken out on them on a loss. Whatever happened on the court was bad enough for the field. To not strip that from them further and on a daily basis to convey to the public that these are young men and women or adult men and women who are working hard to do something just like we all are, and they have a story to tell that goes beyond 17 of 22 for 220 yards and a score. Exactly. You summed it up right there, David. I think my, my, my previous experience from having been in education, still doing education-based services, the nonprofit, and there's always a story behind the story. And, and when you think about there's a reason why someone's angry all the time. It could be family-related. It could be their girl just broke up with them or whatever. <laughs> like we forget, like there's an adage in the classroom. When people come in the classroom, they bring their most immediate experiences in there. So if they got upset from something that happened earlier and you're able to sense that you're doing what you can to get them to, to, to detox and calm down. And that ties in with one of the things we both talked about earlier. When you talk to an athlete after a loss, you know that, they're not out there to show up. They're out there to compete and to win. They're no, no athlete I know on any level willingly wants to get their brains beat in. Now, they'll admit, hey, we didn't execute. These are mistakes that I made. We'll look at the film, see what things we need to do differently and better. So they're acknowledging, okay, we didn't do that great, but here's the adjustments we're going to make. But it comes back to, like we both said, they're still people. And, and like – um. Like you said, talking with people after 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 a loss is 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 challenging. But you have to remember, okay, you're still trying to get at based on your experience because you know you're going to see the coach is going to tell you something. But based on you being out there in the field of play, what were some of the things that you felt you could do differently? Are there any positive takeaways? I've asked that of players after a loss. Are there any positive takeaways? Maybe that rally didn't come to fruition, but they still battled. You know, maybe it's like, okay, 
I see where I know I need to work on in the batting cages or for hockey. I see what I need to work on regarding my butterfly technique or whatever. So I still have to remind myself, just like you remind yourself, number one, these are people. Number two, this is their, this is their job. This is their profession. Number three, they're doing what they can to excel at their profession. So that way, individually, they're able to play more, hopefully earn more. But also from the team concept of we're here to win. We're not here to compete. Competing is cool, but it's, it's more than that. And, and, and one of the best quotes I got um, last year from Greenville, one of the players in Greenville who actually was on the uh, Boston Red Sox taxi squad this year, and I, that Greenville lost that game to Charleston. And he's like, look, you either win or you learn a lesson. And I think that's a very mature way for a kid who is two years removed from high school to view a loss. You win or you learn a lesson. And the more you think about it, there's a lot to it. You learn a lesson. If you keep doing this, you can get your brains beat in. So if you don't want your brains get beaten in, you need to make an adjustment and do something different. So those are the things I really focus on doing. But like you said, like anybody, you take the best of your previous experience. How do you apply it to this situation? And ultimately, regardless of the sport or what have you, win, loss, tie, whatever. You still talk with these people. You don't talk at them. You talk with them. Or it's the proverbial like we're doing right now. When you talk, I listen. When I talk, you listen. Keep it that simple. And a lot of times the players will lead you to places that you hadn't thought of um, in, in those conversations, things that you weren't aware of. And, and that's why I try, you know, and I think you do the same in your preparation. You want to come to the table with information, but at the same time, I always come to the, to the table with flexibility that I have not pre-written my story. I have things that I'm going to ask, but if I see a turn and it's a better turn, you know, that takes me to, to a destination that's different than the one I wanted was initially going down. I'm going to take that road. Because I think that's what that's what good writers, let alone great ones, do is you cannot be a prisoner to any concept. The the, the only thing I try to be a prisoner to is is the moment. You know, you like like you you, you not in, in my opinion making, but in what is the most pertinent now. What I thought was really pertinent thirty minutes ago, you know what I mean? Like you, and you've seen it. You could be writing a game story and you're sitting there fifteen minutes left. You think, oh, this is done. And then the game changes. The outcome may not have changed, but the game itself changes dramatically. And now that story that you were going to tell of what maybe it was an easy blowout and then all of a sudden it got tight or whatever happened, or there, there was a major fight, like you said, in a hockey, sometimes that can change. You win the game, but you had a major, this major fight broke out in the middle. Before I wasn't planning to write about a fight. But now this is, is a piece of this. So it's like that part too, just being flexible and not coming in and, and knowing for sure. Like you have two, I always have two lines. You know, my, my main line is I'm going to write the, 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 the facts as they are. And I'm going to make sure I tell that part. And the other part is, you know, you constantly, and I'm sure you do the same thing. You're writing down moments and saying, I really want to explore this one. Or the, the, I want to I want to explore this series of plays, or this I want to talk to the coach about in the third quarter from the five minute mark on. Why didn't you ever throw a pass to such and such? I want to know those things, and and that's where I try to live. I, I agree with you. You have structure, but there's flexibility within the structure, and and it's the proverbial. Sometimes you have to go where it takes you. Um, I'll even I remember 
last year when I covered the Wake North Carolina game, as a side note, it was funny because like the whole state was out there because that's the oldest college football rivalry in the state. And both teams were undefeated at the time. And this was, you know, Mac Brown 2.0 and, and what have you. And, and I had to cover from the press box because all the media, all the photo, I got there like three and a half hours before all the photo credentials were gone. But the positive thing is, guess who was next to me? The ESPN crew. So it's like I was getting coverage. But I remember one of the questions, it was, it was one of the interviews I did with, um, with, when I, that, that I did with Mr. Taylor. And I asked him because in the first half, Wakers was running through him like it was nothing because, because Carolina's depth chart, especially on offense, they're all freshmen and sophomores. Right. But the second half, they started chipping away. And I remember one of the questions I asked him was the effect of first half, it seems like you guys were able to take advantage of their youth, the moment, and basically do whatever you wanted to. Walk through in the second half, what things did you see that they were doing in order to get more traction? And they're like, yeah, they kind of saw more of what we were doing and started attacking it more, but we focused on the play isn't over. Even if they scored, it was like, so what? We still have, we still here to play. So even in the midst of them coming back and, and waking up winning that game, like by like six points and yet they acknowledge, okay, we give them credit for finally figuring out what we were doing, but we give ourselves more credit for pushing back. And that's the whole you still are focused. It's still one play at a time, things along those lines. Because a fan, you know, fans, they just get caught up on the highlights. Right. Like people who really study the game are like, like for football, and I'm preaching to the choir, the two most important positions are the quarterback and the middle linebacker. It's a chess match between both of them. And it's based on preaching to the choir what they've studied based on their personnel groupings, game situations, et cetera. And all they're doing, they're just going back and forth the whole time. And it just so happens who's able to execute or who's able to figure out what they're doing scheme wise and what have you like that type of stuff. So it's, it's um yeah, you just, you just go where the story takes you. You really do. You go where the story takes you. So we have our ideas. This sounds like something else on a higher level. We have our plans, but someone else's plans might be a little bit different for you. <laughs> hey, that's why they say sports are the ultimate reality show because you don't know what's going to happen. You cannot script it. You cannot predetermine it. Um, but that does lead into where things take you. You get to the point where you're, you're releasing a book now. It's out. Nothing minor. You went yeah. through about six different – um, teams in the southeast, like what it was, um, Birmingham. Yeah, um, here's the book cover. I don't know if you can see it, but here's a book cover Nothing Minor 2019 Summer Journey covering minor league baseball. What I did is it chronicles the coverage I did in Gwinnett, which yep. is here in Metro Atlanta, uh, and they're the AAA affiliate of the Atlanta Braves. Um, Chatt- Chattanooga, which is a double A affiliate of the Cincinnati Reds, Greenville, the single A affiliate of the Boston Red Sox, Greensboro, which is a single A affiliate of the Pittsburgh Pirates. It used to be the Yankees. It used to be the Greensboro Hornets. And for a while it was the Yankees. Then they switched to the Marlins for a little yep. bit. And now it's with the Pirates. And sometimes those affiliations change. Like oh, they I remember, change a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I remember like, as a side note, growing up, the Columbus Clippers were the AAA affiliate of the Yankees. Columbus, I forget if they're, I think, I think they're, they're the Tigers now. No. No, no, no. Uh, Toledo is still Tigers. Triple A is Toledo, but right. the Yankees Triple A affiliate is now uh, Scranton Wilkes Bar. Yeah. So it, it, it changes up. But some of them, like you said, stay 
there. Uh, so Birmingham and then uh, Mississippi. It's technically Pearl, Mississippi, which is right, literally like right across the street from Jackson. So they're the AA affiliate of the Braves. So what I was able to do was just kind of pull from the coverage that I did, as well as contributions from Emery Rose Photography that helped with some of the photography. And a lot of it was really trying to tell more than just what happened in the game. The thing, I, the things about the book that I love the most are the interviews with the players. And we have to remember in baseball, you can get drafted straight out of high school. Some of these kids like that I interviewed at Green, in Greenville, a year or two removed from high school, maybe a year or two removed from college. Now, one exception was with uh, Gwinnett Adam Duvall, and knowing his backstory, people forget he, with the Cincinnati Reds, he made the All-Star game in 2016, but because of the Braves' depth chart, Freddie Freeman's at first base, so he's not getting time there. Nick Markakis was in right field, he's not getting time there. And they had just promoted Austin Riley, who started off like, like red hot before teams started figuring out and making adjustments to him. So he needed to be in AAA to get the reps. So at the time, he's in the top five in home runs and RBIs. So it's interesting with, with the pool of players I was able to talk with, and a number of them, probably at least four or five players, have seen major league action since like last summer. But those life lessons they talked about that you can apply beyond the game, I think whether, even if you're not a fan of baseball, just those takeaways, you know, the work ethic, the focus, the perspective, like I said before, you either win or learn a lesson. That's pretty big. But another thing that I'm really happy about was the insert that I did on the Negro Southern Leagues Museum in Birmingham, Alabama. Some people don't realize they actually have the largest archive of Negro Leagues memorabilia. You would think it would be Kansas City. Yeah. But Birmingham has a larger set of archives. And what's neat about that is being able to go into the museum. I'll do a simple plug for the museum. They are reopened. You got to do it by appointment only. But in regards to access and learning about the history, not only the Jackie Robinsons, but Larry Doby, who a lot of people overlook. People forget Willie Mays started in the Negro Leagues. Hank Aaron played for the Negro Leagues. Hank Aaron. Campanella. Even um, the Harrison family. The whole Jerry Harrison, Scott, Scott and Jerry Harrison Jr.'s, you know, dad and what have you. So, so the, the, the neat thing is if it's groups of like nine or less, it's free to go. If it's nine or more, it's a buck. And you can take your time and go through it within like an hour, hour, 15 minutes. But I think what's really timely about me putting that in there is some people might not realize this year is actually the centennial celebration of the establishment of the Negro Leagues. So just through that lens of history is important. And another insert I put in there, and especially when you think about pathways to sports, like we're talking about you know, for what we do through the lens of journalism, I had a great interview with one of the umpire supervisors and he was a former major league umpire transitioned to basically training umpires. And he was breaking down how um, in today's times you can get scholarships to go to umpire school where he had to come out of pocket for everything. Um, Another thing that he talked about is the longevity on the major league level, even though it's not a lot of turnover, he broke down the average umpire career is like 25 plus years. I don't know too many sports careers that last 25 years. And on top of that, the earnings, like the top, the top umpires, their earnings are close to half a mil. 
So I'm not telling people to be an umpire because there's obviously some different dynamics that go on. Um, exactly. <laughs> but having said all that, that can be a pathway to sports. And then a number of people don't realize a number of these managers like Omar Vizquel is managing at Birmingham. He's probably going to be groomed to take a major league job someday. Uh, Damon Berryhill and Jody Davis, who ironically both played both for, the for the Cubs. Cubs at different times. Damon Berryhill is the tri- manager of the uh, AAA Gwinnett, and um, Jody Davis is manager of uh, AAA Louisville. So some of these former players, and if in looking at Birmingham staff, Birmingham's staff, Richard Dotson, who was a 20-game winner in the early 80s, Wes Helms, who played – I remember Wes, played for the Braves. He's in the he's with he's basically Birmingham's in the Chicago system. And then when you start tracking a number of these guys, you know, the Wake Forest connection, um, Gavin Dag, I forget oh gosh, I'm gonna it's terrible, but one of the players for Birmingham who's one of their top twenties prospects graduated from Wake in twenty seventeen. Um, even current players, Tim Anderson, who's a starting shortstop for the Chicago White Sox. And last year, I think I think it was last year he won the American League batting title. He played his minor league ball at Birmingham. Um, you know, Nick Mattigrall came straight up from double-A to be the White Sox starter this year. Uh, on the triple-A level, Travis Demerit, who we were talking about earlier about Detroit, when he got traded last year in the trade deadline deal for Shane Green, Detroit purchased his triple-A contract. He closed out last year as their starter in right field. And then this year he was back and forth between the taxi squad and the major league team Tuki Toussaint back and forth between triple a and whatnot. Um, and probably one of the, all the interviews were great, but I was very blessed the same weekend I'm in Mississippi to, as a participating author for the Mississippi book festival. I cover the Mississippi Braves. It happens to be Braden Shoemake's double a debut. What made that so impressive was Shoemake played three years at Texas A&M. He was one of the Atlanta Braves two first round draft picks in 2019. So two months after getting drafted, he's the first of any of the 2019 picks to make it to double a. So, Obviously, I don't. I don't think he was called up for the practice squad, but I have a feeling. Hopefully, when things calm down, he'll probably be on the AAA level. It would not surprise me by 2022 if he's up with the Braves, either a shortstop or third base. I'm just going to get to put it out there. Not trying to. Not trying to knock anybody who's currently at short or third. But, but he's I'll, that talented. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah, yeah. And and you look at. So just looking at all those dynamics from the game coverage. Uh, the photography, like I said, I did most of it, but I had a contributing photographer, Emmy Rose, uh, just talking with these guys and the life lessons. They talked about, you know, the dynamics of the game, but they dropped some nuggets that whether you're a fan of baseball or not, you can apply to just about anything. And that ties in with one of the things we've both talked about. Whenever we interview people, there's a story beyond the story. And when people feel comfortable in opening up and sharing it, it just makes for that much, you know, richer an experience. And and that's really it. Cause like you said, when we talked about listening and just being that vessel, really all you're trying to do as a great interviewer, as uh, to, to, to get a good story is to let that person talk. You're trying to get them to the moment where they feel comfortable enough to go and just say whatever until they want to stop. Like, 
those are those moments that you can't manufacture, that you can't write a question for. It comes from that connection of you have listened enough that I'm willing to tell you more. I tell you what, and you've seen it too from the people you've experienced when, like you said, you, you, you make people feel comfortable. They know that you're coming, you're not coming at them. You're talking with them. And I'll tell you what, like one of the best interviews when I think back was with Josh Davis of Greensboro and we almost lost track of time. It's like, dude, I want to sit here and keep talking with you. But you got to go back and watch game film and do, you know, like hitting in the cages. But he was just so like all the, all the players I interviewed have been awesome. But like Josh, like he was just like straight, man. Like, like it was like, I, I was trying to keep track of time. Like, okay, I know. Let me just get in and out within a quick five minutes. Cause I don't want to, you know, anytime you do pregame, you want to talk long enough, get what you need to get and go so they can stick with their routine. That's the same thing for hockey. But some of these guys, like one, one of the hockey players was like, wow, are you going to be here more often? I'm like, well, yeah, you know, before COVID hit, he's like, you need to talk to some more people. And and that's cool because like in the hockey setting, like you, you, you stand, out. stand out like a sore thumb. Like everybody's going to, you might not know everybody, but everybody's going to know. Everybody you. knows you. But, but to have players feel that comfortable in sharing what they're sharing um, and what have you, but pivoting back to the book, I mean, all, all the guys that I interviewed were real helpful. All the team staff were pretty helpful as well. Um, being on the – and there's stuff I didn't put in there that maybe I'll revisit, like when you're sitting in the camera pits – and you see everything <laughs> and then the, like the staff start chopping it up with you, whatever, like there's some real good conversations, but, um, but no, but like I said, the thing I, I like about this book and hopefully fans of the fans of baseball will like it just because you're talking to sport fans of sports will like it because you're looking a little bit deeper at the competition fans of history will like it because of the, of the Negro Southern leagues piece. But I think even if you're not a fan of the game, when you really peel back the layers of what these guys were talking about, just the life lessons, that's, those are like the biggest takeaways and get into the game. That's about it. Get into the game. The minors are just different in the way that you are treated because they do need coverage and they are very much more open to people coming in. But I will also say this, like you said, with the players, they have not learned yet how to be dismissive of you as a media person. <laughs> so they're looking for people. If you're cool, you're cool with them. And it, it, it becomes on that level, the minors, it, I've always found. And I told people this and I, when I worked in Springfield, Massachusetts, the, some of the coolest interviews I ever had were with minor league soccer players and minor league hockey players. Because the, most of the hockey guys were not from America. <laughs> Oh yeah, they're not. So they were they were all like really enjoying like just the experience of being in America and they were extremely open and just and if you can demonstrate slightly that you understood hockey and I do, you know, I mean again, I'm I'm a kid, I was born in Detroit. The Red Wings have been part of my life since I was a kid. So mm-hmm. I could go in there and I could halfway have at least have a decent I'm not, you know, I'm not going to have I'm not going to get deep into the game, but I understand the rules. I understand the, the basics of it, and I, I have my own preferences of it. European guys love it when you talk about Olympic hockey, too. Oh, my gosh. Dave, I tell you what, like, I remember one of the players who really 
um, for Atlanta. Like he had a great, it was his first year. He averaged a point a game, but he's from Quebec. So it's just neat. Like picking up on that, you know, the accent, but one of the guys I interviewed was from Philly. So it's like, wait a minute, I grew up in Jersey. Do you know such a, and, and it's great. Like, you know, once you draw some type of connection, then it's like the, the floodgates open, but yeah, like, like it's, it's like you said, they haven't gotten to the point. It's not that they're not professional, but they haven't gotten to, for like a term, that level of overlap or scrutiny or things along those lines. And, and like I said, they're oftentimes, even with doing this book, like I'm the only person doing pregame. I'm, I'm, there's I'm no the one there. There's no one there. There's really, there's literally like nobody there. And, and another thing, you know, as another thing as a sports person, and even if you're not necessarily a fan of baseball, the, and one thing I didn't really mention in here, the, the price points, I don't think, I think the most important, the most expensive seat would probably be at AAA. And that was like 2025 a ticket. There's one Chattanooga, like real talk. I got an invite after I, um, I got, well, you know, you get the press releases and what have you to come back to cover a game because they had, it was a celebration of the anniversary of Coca-Cola, five cent Cokes. You ain't getting five cent nothing <laughs> anywhere. Um, Not we've heard about, we've heard Not about the, the dollar hot dogs in some of the places like dollar for the 21 and older, 21 and older only please like the dollar beer and that type of thing. So even if you're not necessarily a fan of the game, just to be able to get out when, you know, it's obviously a lot you know better to do so to get out. And if you have a family and you're trying to just get out for a minute, I mean, and then, like you said, the biggest thing with the minor leagues, the players in general are a lot more accessible. It doesn't mean they're not, they're there, you know, early, they're there doing their workouts. They're there doing their studying game film and all that type of stuff. So it's not like they're not working like the major leaguers, but it's just different and it's a lot more intimate. So especially if people get overwhelmed by big, big crowds, you're not going to get overwhelmed by a Marley crowd because it's generally a lot more intimate. So again, hopefully, um, and it's a culture shock for a lot of those guys who come from major, who went to major universities or were the guy in their times. If you're in single A, there might be 300 people in the stands at, on, on, a, on a given night for a game. I mean, we've had it. I mean, you know, we had minor league baseball in New Orleans for a long time and we had triple A teams. Um, and there were nights, I mean, it was, you know, these are guys who some of them had been, like you said, had been to the majors and are coming back from injury or whatever, got sent down. And you went from 25, 40,000 people to less than a thousand on a Tuesday night. And it's just that focus of where in a lot of times sports, you try to, you, you people say, I got to use the crowd. I want to have that. We talked about, you know, in the NBA bubble, they talk about not having a crowd in baseball where you're playing a hundred plus games. And then you're in the minors, that ability to compartmentalize and shut out the fact that there is no fan support on a given night. When you're on the road, there might be not a single person in the crowd who gives a damn about you in certain cities. You know, like it really does test you mentally in a different way than being on a college campus and having, um, you know, in a, a college basketball, a college baseball setting in a major school where everybody is for you. This is really a solitary thing within a team construct. I, I, I agree. There are some, there are some teams – 
There are some games when I look back at the coverage last year, there were some like, for example, Greenville and Charleston is a pretty big draw. It's the Palmetto State rivalry, and they're both affiliates to the Red Sox and Yankees. So while it's not like being at Fenway Park or the stadium, you have a decent number of people there because, okay, two cities, rival cities. Oh, wait, there's that. And not only that, they were playing a five-game series. So it's kind of like just before going into their break. Um, that I mean, but – Still, like you said, I think you have to commend these guys because to me, I think the minor leagues really teach them among anything, how to focus, how to prepare and how not to get caught up in that. So there, you know, you learn how to perform under that situation where you're in, you know, where you really are. It's just like you're playing, you're not playing. And then there's the crowd acting crazy. But then again, for and then another thing I have to say with Greenville, another neat thing that they have, they have their own green monster, which makes sense. If these players are going to come through the organization and you think about players that came through Greenville, like Mookie Betts, who we know is now with uh, the Dodgers, but Mookie Betts came through there. Um, Xander Bogarts came through there. So part of the reason that they're able to do get off to a fast start, they've been growing up single A, double A, triple A, playing in a ballpark that has a green monster. So they know the angles and all that. So when they come up to the major leagues, it's like, okay, I'm going to play here 80 games a year, 80, 81 games a year. Perfect. Um, but yeah, you, that you, when you really want to see people learn the game and then when they get to that setting and they cut loose, Hey, to me, that's like one of that's part of the reason why I did the book. Like it's it to me, it's one of those hidden sports jewels ranging from price access to player access to like we said, the intimacy and learning the game and seeing these folks develop and some of these backstories, you know, two former teammates that grew up together, played with and against each other, drafted by the same organization. Two of them were top five prospects one was the number one prospect in the red system then he got traded in a three-team deal last year that involved Cleveland so that Bauer went to Cincinnati he went to San Diego and Fran Mill Reyes and I forget the other player that went to San Diego I mean went to Cleveland then he gets traded again to Seattle at this year's trade deadline but he's still rated as a top 10 top 20 prospect so it's eventually he's Hopefully, I'm hoping next year, the way Seattle is, hopefully he gets the outfield job. But he's good. Shouts to Mr. Trammell. No, he really he really is that legit. Like, he's good. But sometimes that happens. So even then, they learn the business. Here today, gone tomorrow. I mean, that happens. Well, let me ask you this. Um, I am a big advocate of destroying the current college sports model. Mm-hmm. I am, I've talked with a number of folks about it i've looked at the economics of it and then when you see things like the maturity of the young men that you come across in the minor leagues who have learned these life lessons are not pampered in any way people if people want to look at the Mm -hmm. minors you go watch this is not glory even though they're getting checks this is not I mean, a lot of guys at the single A level, they could be still applying their own tape on certain nights. They could be, you know, this is real. It's a job. I think that that, that there's still a way to do that, to create a system in this country where education is valued 
And yet we allow athletes, which have a very short shelf life, no matter what, no matter what sport it is, even if you get a 20 year career out of it, that's still a small sliver of your lifespan, hopefully. I think that we can do that here. I think that we can make it more equitable by giving more young people the right to make that choice because right now they don't have a choice. And I, I, am not a, I am not for the exploitation of somebody by removing of choice. There's always going to be failures. And, and in your mind, leaves, when you saw those, there's guys who are lifers who are just hanging on, mm-hmm. who, who are just who oh, yeah. want a shot, who know really that the odds are against them, but they're, they're playing for one shot maybe. There's going to be those guys in football. There are going to be those guys in basketball if we change the model. But don't essentially – we want to see people have that right to try to succeed or fail on their own merits because the model now, like you talk about value to the public, our institution of higher learning, they ain't charging $25 for no football tickets. They ain't charging $25 for no basketball tickets. You ain't getting in the arena for that. Uh, even on a minor league level, when we see what guys across the, you know, overseas, the, the Luka Doncic's of the world, the you know, Tony Parker's, the um, Chris Stapps Porzingis, these are guys who've been pro since they were 15 years old. We know it can translate. Do you think there's something other than the economics of it? And I know you do, but what would you say? But I mean, why culturally can we not get over that hurdle in the United States? Because we're the only country that does this. We are literally the only country in the world that has collegiate um, athletics the way we do here. So why, what would it take to get out of this, to break this? Well, the United States sometimes is the only country doing some other dumb stuff, to be honest with you. It's not just limited to sports. Oh my goodness. Here's how I see college sports, honestly. Number one, let's just fo- we're just going to focus on the two biggest money makers, football and basketball. And to put it simply, there's no way college coaches get paid what they get paid and schools get the television contracts if it's not for these players. Number two, this is another thing. Don't assume everybody is getting – every student athlete like in football and basketball is getting a scholarship because it's part of what they've budgeted. For example, our very own Chris Paul, when he came back for his retirement ceremony for his number, he met the two families that helped finance his scholarship. So every school we know it's not always earmarked. It's not always budgeted, but here's, 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 I guess the simple thing. Number one, these players have to get more compensation other than quote their education and people have to realize those scholarships are just like an NFL contract. They're renewable each year. If they don't want to renew it, they don't have to. So there has to be something. Um, And, and I don't know if it means, do they get, do they get a stipend or do they get that stipend is put into a trust that they can cash in and use, let's say, for their education or whatever. But there have, there have to be some changes. You can't keep this same system. And I'll say this, and this is just me personally, as much as I love college football, me personally, I wouldn't have played this fall. We know that was economically driven. And politically. And politically. Rather, and politically, but obviously economics because too many people losing too many money, too much money. I would have personally rather them know how they have spring practice. You play a short season in the spring, 
maybe you start a little bit later in the fall of 2021 and do a short season, then go back to the normal season. Um, I, I, I mean, if we're talking about, and I know there's players that, that do want to play and I get it, but you're still dealing with the public health risk. And so my, my thing though, is we, we, we are so wishy-washy when it comes to deciding when college players are, are, are adults or not, because We'll say, well, look, they're old enough to decide to play, but then at the same time we say they're boys and we have to look out for these boys and we're turning them into men. Well, if they're man enough to make these decisions on that end, why are they not man enough to make decisions about their finances? Why are they not man enough to make decisions about their majors? Why are they not man enough to make decisions about, you know, I'm hurt today, I can't come out and practice coach? They're not, they don't, they're not in position to make any of those, but it's man enough when it suits their purposes. But any other time, they are wards of the state, essentially. Yeah, I'd say this. If you're going to provide them coaching to play and their fitness and their nutrition, then what about other stuff? And we're not saying it doesn't happen, but it needs to happen on a broader scale because we've seen too many horror stories where, you know, just be eligible. Just be eligible and now you use up your eligibility and you hadn't done fill in the blank in class because all you've been told is what? Be eligible, which is um, you know, there's some schools that get it to the best of their ability. There's some schools that don't want to get it until something major happens and all of a sudden it's an issue. But, yeah, it's it's clear with, you know, the NCAA. It, yeah, they're changing. We went to a school that graduates it, every year, finishes top five in graduation. Mm-hmm. But still, we know there there were horror stories at Wake Forest. Oh, yeah. There were things that would have been considered just from our – observational uh, position because we don't, have, I'm not trying to throw nobody in the streets of them, but things that normally that we might've said, these might be violations of rules. Even at that level, you see, I'm just going to, I'm just going to say this. I'm going to say this. We know college ath- athletics on that end is cutthroat. It's, it's, you know, winning, you know, it's, it's about winning it's about putting people in the seats. It's about selling paraphernalia. It's about getting the television contracts, et cetera. So while it's still the game and development and team and camaraderie and all that type of stuff, we know that there's a bigger financial footprint than when we were in school. You think about teams that made the NCAA tournament when we were in school, they were getting 200, 250 grand. Now it's probably like five, 600 grand if you get knocked out in the first round. So it's, it's, We'll just say because of the pressure to win and the, because of the pressure to bring in revenue, there's going to be some spaces and places where there are some things that are very questionable, to say the least. Um, and you hope, like you said before, if there can be changes to the current model that put things in better balance. Because that's the only way is to empower the athletes is the only way to achieve balance. And so hopefully you think about like the lawsuit from the student athletes at Northwestern a few years ago, you know, if the image and likeness for, um, I think it was EA sports. Um, well, but we that, the, that was the um, O'Bannon suit. Well, there's the O'Bannon suit. And then some of the players from Northwestern had, but that was the national labor union. Yeah. They, they went to so, LRB. So hopefully more of these types of things, get more traction to where you're like, you know what, we do have to make adjustments because the model that's in place, there's still too many gaps where it will be very problematic. And the people that would get the short end of the stick are the very people that you're relying on to funnel this. 
so you have to you have to look at there's some different things that have to be done. You'd rather let's let's restructure or you're going to spin spin into even deeper chaos. To put Maybe it say, the saying uh the game isn't broken but it is fixed. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the game ain't broken. Oh, gosh. But it is fixed. Um <laughs> 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 uh, the, the, the common passion that we share is baseball. Um, and this has been the most unusual baseball season, just like all of these have been unusual. Mm-hmm. Here we are now, championship series for both leagues. Um, somehow, uh, the Astros, who barely got into the postseason, under 500, and to, to, to two Yankee fans like ourselves uh, – <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a bitter pill to to swallow just to see it at this point. But here they are, three games apiece in the in the ALCS. How did how did we get here on that side? Here's how Houston got here. Number one, like you said, they expanded the playoffs from five to eight teams. So if they had kept it at the original five, Houston wouldn't have made it. So we can scrutinize that all you want, but it's just like in any postseason. Teams get hot. And here's another thing we have to think about. If this were a regular season based on the games, this is about game 80. So you know how the first quarter of the season, everybody's in the same boat, and then players really start hitting their stride, and they start separating. So to a degree, when you think about it, and Houston has been pretty much a playoff fixture since uh, 2015, basically. So to a degree, they're key players. Think about it. Altuve doesn't have the injuries. Correa doesn't have the injuries like he did. So because of this, sh- this shortened season has actually benefited some of those players who have missed time. And the scary thing is Houston is playing their best ball without their best pitcher, Justin Verlander, because Verlander only made one start and he's shut. He's out. He's probably not coming back until 2022. So what Houston has done is definitely, as through the lens of watching baseball, what Houston has been able to do is very impressive. They're playing their best ball. Think about one of their top pitchers is with the Yankees. Think about it. So they're two, two of their top pitchers from last year's rotation are either with another team or they're out for the season. So what Granke and some of the other pitchers have been able to do during this postseason has been pretty solid. Their bullpen, which sometimes have been a little bit sketchy, has been pretty steady. And really, to me, like the person who's been the biggest engine has been Carlos Correa. He's been the most outspoken, but he's also backed it up with his play. So through the lens of baseball, you have to give credit to what Houston's doing, even also with all the scrutiny with the with the with the um, you know, the cheating scandal and the fact that, yes, we know teams steal signs, but they they just went like ridiculously overboard with it. Um, You've got to give Tampa a lot of credit too. Tampa who really changed the, the, the way of pitching with the whole opener concept. Mm-hmm. And you think about it, you have one pitcher in the Yankee series that closed the game and saved it. Then in another game, he just came in at any other time. Tampa, we know Tampa is not going to score a lot of runs, but they know their style of play. They know if they keep it close, they feel like they've got the pitching to keep it in, and it's just that one hit that they need. So you have to give Tampa a lot of credit for playing their best ball at this time. And one of the key engines is a person that was on the Cardinals playoff roster last year as a fill-in, and now he's getting a chance to shine. You know, in the National League, um, 
you know, you have to give the Dodgers a lot of credit under this, you know, current playoff landscape, making the playoffs eight years in a row is, is definitely impressive. Um, but you know, the, 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 the dark cloud over them is they haven't been able to finish the drill. No, and we're talking since 1988. Kirk Gibson hobbling on that pinch hit. Um, you know, and Kershaw had to miss a start because of his back issues. But you look at that offense when you can have a former American League MVP as your leadoff batter that's not looking at players like a Bellinger or, um, you know, some of the other players on their bench and what have you. Like the Dodgers definitely have one of the deepest offenses in the league, and they can beat you either by the power game or the contact game. But for whatever reason, when it comes to postseason, they just haven't been able to seal the deal. The Braves have had, you know, the Braves need to seal the deal. I'll just be blunt. If they don't win tonight, they're going to lose a series because you can't keep letting a good team get back in it. But having said all that, the Braves offense, obviously that signing of Marcel Azuna was big. Why the Cardinals let him go and arguably a couple years before, why the Marlins traded him is up for debate. But Asuna has has come up big. Um, you know, um, you know, Acuna, definitely top 10 player in the game already. Do and the Braves have the best offense in baseball? I would say, to me, if it were a full season and if everybody's relatively healthy, honestly – I'd say this. The Yankees would have the best power game, but the problem is oh, they're course. They strike out the all the game. time. The, the Yankees have the best power game, but in regards to offensive versatility, I'd say honestly, like honestly, the Braves and the, and the, and the Dodgers probably have the best offenses. Like I said, Betts was what? A number two, number three, number four hitter for Boston. Mm-hmm. He's leading off for the Dodgers. So what does that tell you about the people behind him that they feel that is complimentary? The Braves with, with Freddie Freeman, who I think is finally getting his due as being a top player. Um, their, their, their second baseman, whose name escapes me right now, one of those young guys that they locked in, Acuna, who they locked in to build around. Austin Riley is playing a lot, a much more mature level of baseball than what he did last year. Um, Marcakis came back. Uh, Adam Duvall, who we talked about, who couldn't get any run last year, has been a key part of it. They're getting better starting pitching in that bullpen. A good signing was Will Smith, who closed for um, the Giants last year. He and Melanson were basically doing that in San Francisco. The Braves have have are putting it together, but they need to put the Dodgers down. They need to end that series tonight. If they if they lose, and it's tied going to a game seven, and especially the Dodgers, like no something's got to give. And, you know, the Bra- and talking about, you know, the Dodgers haven't smelled what the World Series since 88. The Braves haven't been since 99. And we know yeah. who beat them down, <laughs> just yeah. like in 96. But, um, but, but, I, but really, you have to, regardless of who you're a fan of or not, you have to give credit to these teams for getting this far. And right now, all four of those teams clearly are pay- playing their best ball of the season. But you know, we've also got to keep in mind, like I said, this would be – around the midpoint of the season where you're really starting to hit your strides. So, you know, we're seeing that. Yeah, and we didn't – the schedule was so unusual too and the fact that it was 
so division driven and you're only playing the national league teams in your geographic area, which, which to me also tilted the level of competition because some of those divisions were so non-competitive versus others. The NL East was a lot deeper in competition for the AL East than it would have been competing against the AL, I mean, the NL West, which was hot garbage from, from most of it. Oh, the hot AL West was garbage because there's no, there are only two teams, but you think about the AL East and I'll tell you, and this cup comes from covering last year. I covered Ryan Mountcastle when he was with uh, Norfolk and that Joker played well for Baltimore after years of just getting their heads bashed in, they're starting to turn the corner, and a lot of their Toronto's guys getting better. Are Toronto, and we saw them. They made the playoffs this season. I mean, Toronto is getting better. And you think about what Toronto is able to do with probably one of their best players, Bichette, being out most of the season. Um, Tampa, you know, they're so minor league reliant. Um, and the Sox will be back. They'll, they'll be back. The Red it's Sox just- are going to be back because the two two of the players I interviewed at Greenville. Um, the first baseman whose name escapes me, I'll, I, I can get the book, <laughs> but, but, but he's, like I said, he turned down playing ball at the university of Miami. And now three years removed from high school, he has a chance to be getting, you know, significant time with the, with the, the Red Sox. And, but the Red Sox had a bunch of their best prospects at the A level. So, you know, those guys are coming, um, Boston, give them two years and they'll be back because it's Boston. And the Yankees, I'll say this to, to our team's credit, they're doing a better job of holding on to their minor league talent and developing it because you look at – and they're doing a good job of scouting other teams. Like Luke Vogt is a great example. The pitcher who they traded, Chasen Shreve or whatever, has bounced around other teams. Vogt, that was a great scouting job on Vogt. You think about the Chapman deal, which yielded um, Glaber Torres – who is going to be blocked because at the time it was Addison Russell and Javier Baez. That was a great pickup. Gio Ruscello was from the scrap heap and they, and he has, I love Gio. he's a solid, he's a solid defensive player and he's got a decent bat. You think about, you know, in the Cleveland Indians deal for uh, Andrew Miller with them getting Clint Frazier. Frazier is good enough to be starting for a lot of teams. And then uh, the kid that they brought up who they only used as that opener, Garcia, is not a bad pitcher. So the Yankees, if, and then – like They just need guys, starting pitching. The Yankees' problem is they can't ever keep their starters healthy. They the can't Yankees, ever keep them healthy. The last few years, you lose these big chunks of the season from the starters. And, and you know postseason pitching is, do you have guys who can make people miss? And the Yankees have not had enough guys who can make people miss. The Yankees – the the with all the development that they've done with their minor leagues and doing a better job of keeping their talent of all the smart signings they've made in the field the biggest weakness for the Yankees as you said is their starting pitching and while they made a great splash with Garrett Cole I think Cole showed yeah Cole's the real deal he did a very solid job in the playoffs even in game five coming back on three games three days rest and going five plus innings and giving up a run Cole did what he needed to do. But here are the question marks with the Yankees starting pitching. What's going to happen with Severino because he missed this year? Can't count on him. Paxton is a free agent. Are you going to bring him back? And think about it. The second half of 2019, Paxton did a very solid job. 
But then this year, we don't know if he was pitching hurt. So which Paxton are you getting? Tanaka is a free agent. And that man was supposed to have elbow surgery. And he, I don't know what they've used, crazy glue and some other stuff. But um, we know is a location pitcher. And, And you think about the game against Cleveland, he, you know, because of the rain delays. Yeah, he got roughed up and then shut them down. They shouldn't have played that game, though. I have that, I have that problem with baseball. They, they, they should not have played that night. They, they shouldn't have played it. So, again, if you're looking at the Yankees starting rotation next year, you figure Cole will be your number one. We're going to say Severino's your number two. You know you need a left-hander in there to break things up. So, do they re-sign Paxton? So, you know Cole's going to be your number one. Severino's probably going to be your number two. But then, you know you need a left-hander. So, are you going to re-sign Paxton? Are you going to let him go? Are you going to trade somebody? Or do you go ahead and give Jordan Montgomery a shot? And Montgomery is coming off an injury, and he didn't pitch that bad in game four. They only let him go four innings, but he gave up a run. He did, he did a decent job. Who's your number four pitcher? Are you going to re-sign Tanaka? Are you going to do with At him? At what cost? Well, At what cost and how long? Here's the thing. If I'm the, if I'm the Yankees, the Yankees are probably going to do similar to Tanaka, what they did for CC Sabathia when Sabathia's deal, his big deal ended. Um, Tanaka can still pitch. He can still be a serviceable starter. When he's on, he can be a tough customer. Does he need to be at the top of the rotation? Maybe not. You can put him at the back end and mask him and hide him there. But again, how much money is he going to want? Yeah, you have to manage his starts. If it's kind of like if you're you're hoping really if he can make twenty starts during the regular season and be available in the postseason, that's like your ultimate end game. Now for Tanaka, my thing for let me quickly on the Yankees in the last two seasons at the deadline, they made no moves for starting pitching. And that was the only thing that they knew that they had to have. So two straight years, you made no new moves for pitching. And then I thought strategically they played against themselves in the Tampa series. I'm going to tell you what, real quick on that Tampa series. They lost that series in game two because they tried to play Tampa's game with the opener. Tampa can play that game. The Yankees can't because when Garcia came out and started – yeah, he had 25 pitches that he threw, but my goal would be at least let him go five. If he can go five innings, give up two runs, maybe three, with that offense, that offense, you know, is one pitch away from coming back. But they pitched him for an inning. They brought in J.A. Happ, who was up and down. And, and we know why the Yankees traded for Happ in 2018, because of his record against Boston. He did what he was supposed to do in 2018. 2019, ERA between 4.5 and like 5.2. This year, up and down. But there's a reason why they didn't start you and slate you for starting in the Cleveland series. Seriously. I would I would have honestly in game two, I would have gone – and Garcia gave up the home run to a hot hitter, big deal. Okay? I'd have tried to have Garcia go five innings, 75 pitches. That would have been my goal. Once he gets to 75, 80 pitches, because you may need him to throw an inning for relief, then I would have gone to the bullpen. But game two, the strategy was horrible. And game five, and, I, and I've said this, I blame Aaron Boone for game five. I was a little bit surprised that they brought in, um, gosh, the left-hander whose name escapes me right now, but used to be the closer for Baltimore. Yes. I know. Zach Britton. Yes, 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 yes. Now, here's my take. 
I kind of sort of see why you brought Zach Britton in six because you wanted to shut shut down. He had just pitched 20 pitches the night before. So I can kind of compromise on that to break up the left-handers. So now it comes the seventh inning. I would have brought in either Adovino or Chad Green to pitch the inning. If I'm going to bring in Araldis Chapman, there's a reason why Chapman is no longer a starter when he first came up. Chapman is good for either the ninth inning only, or if you bring him before then, you bring him in to get the last out of the eighth and go the ninth. He's not Mo. He's not Mo. He's not a and he's he's not a two inning closer in because he's not really. He doesn't he, he doesn't think like that. He doesn't. He's there like chuck it, chuck it, chuck it. Chap, Chapman is about let me bring the gas, but I can maintain it for an inning definitely. Maybe an inning and a third, inning and two thirds. Two innings is really his max, and there aren't really too many relievers or like Mo or any of the relievers in the 70s where I remember Goose Gossage closing out games pitching three innings. But the biggest mistakes were I, I can understand bringing in Britain in the sixth. I can understand that. At first, I'm like, why are you bringing him in? And you brought him in to shut down the sixth inning. Okay, now I'm thinking you bring in another righty, you know, change all the perspectives. You could have done Adovino Green to do two outs apiece. So now – if it's one out in the eighth, you can bring in Chapman. You brought in Chapman in the seventh inning, and you brought him, and that was boneheaded. Like, and I'll and I'll say I'll say this. All I know is this: this is as, through the lens of a person who covers baseball. Those were the two biggest strategic mistakes that the Yankees made in Game Two and Game Five. They that's where they lost that series. I agree with you. I think they tried now, to be as a something fan, As a fan, I'm going to wear my fan hat. Aaron Boone's been given the keys to the castle. And in the regular season has been great. But he, of all people, having played with the Yankees in that, you know, that 2003 series where he cracked the pinch hit home run off of Wakefield, he, of all people, should know the postseason is totally different. And while you do change up some things, maybe your lineup order, things along those lines, when you're going to start people, you don't do that type of experimentation in the playoffs, especially how the postseason is now where they did it back to old school. You remember round one, best out of three, because that's how it used to be back even in the 70s. Um, round two, best out of five, because when they did that first – First time they did the expanded tier, it was best out of five. Yep. You don't have any you don't have margins for error. This is not the time to experiment during the regular season. You don't do it in the postseason. You can do some added wrinkles, start somebody different, bat somebody different. But in regards to your pitching and knowing your pitching personnel, Boone made some horrible moves. And I know fans were calling for his head. Well, look, we're talking this is a franchise that fired um Joe Girardi and he won a title. And that was and and he got fired. Boone has had the best team in the American League at the very least for three years, and has no World Series appearances to show for it. Not even not not a World Series loss. No World Series appearances to show for it. I think I could also criticize the way he's dealt with um, Gary Sanchez because I think he's given Gary Sanchez way too much rope and allowed him to fail spectacularly in a way that no other player at that position would be allowed to do because it's, it's, it's catcher. I'm sorry. It's just not that enough. I can't carry you at 174. 
You're batting 174. I cannot carry that. Sanch, here, here's the thing. And another name we don't mention is Joe Torre. Remember, Joe Torre during his 12-year tenure never missed the playoffs. Every other year he averaged making the World Series. So 12 postseason appearances, six World Series. You're making the World Series every other year. You won um, four of them because that was the loss. They lost to the Diamondbacks. Into the, uh... They lost to the Diamondbacks. That was just one of those things. And they lost to Florida because Florida's – and people look, have to remember that the Yankees – ERA in that series against Florida was probably a little bit over three, Josh which is Beckett. good. They just had too much. But, Eric, but, but Florida had Beckett, and I forget who else, and their ERA was like 1.5. It's like you have a 3.0 ERA, which is still good, and the other team has an ERA half as big as you. It's like, hey, you you, you can't do anything right there. That Marlins so, team just had everything, though. They were just they were just on – like you said, it's that role, and sometimes you run into a team that's just hot, and they were hot – and baseball and hockey lend themselves to that. But at the same time, when you're the Yankees or the Dodgers or whoever, what you pay for, when people talk about salary, what you're paying for is for a bigger margin of error. That's what you pay for with that money. It covers your margin of error. Look at and, and so the Yankees didn't use what their resources available to them to expand their margin of error. They kept it the same the entire season. And so now when you look at this group that's here, the, these final four teams – Dusty Baker managed his team in a fantastic manner. And Dusty mm-hmm. Baker is one of those people who needs to get more credit. He should be in the Hall of Fame as a manager. Agreed as a manager, uh, yes. One of the greatest managers in modern baseball. And had, had, having taken the Giants to the World Series, having the taken Cubs the Cubs to the best you know, position that they had been in ever. Um, you know, and he did it wherever he's been. He set the Nationals up. But they, the Nationals wouldn't have been a success without Dusty. Mm-hmm. And now he's doing it. He, he's rehabilitated Houston <clears throat> and made them a team that you're, you still hate. I hate them, but I don't hate Dusty. And I would love to kind of see Dusty – at the very least, I hate their Dodgers too as a Yankees fan. But I'd like to see Dusty against the Dodgers in the World Series. That would be interesting to see. I tell you what, like you said, Dusty, everywhere he's been a manager, their, their teams have made the postseason. That man, Like you said, give the man his due as a manager. And especially going into a, a toxic situation at Houston – He's he's gotten he he's get he's getting those guys locked in. Dusty's good. Obviously, the manager of Tampa Bay uh, with Kevin Cash. Give him credit for stepping in after Joe Madden. Um, you know, Dave Roberts. Still don't know if he's a good same, manager or not. Roberts is in the same boat to a degree as Aaron Boone because they got rid of Mattingly. They gave Roberts the keys, and he hasn't gotten anything. And, and shouts to Don Mattingly for what he did with with Miami this year getting them in the playoff. No one saw that coming Now, Obviously the short season, but still give Mattingly his due for what he did with the, with, with, you know, a Miami. And I still don't understand why Mattingly or Willie did not get a job, get the job in New York. Willie Randolph, who has not gotten a job since he got fired by the Mets, took the Mets to the freaking world series and won a lot of games for the Mets. And Willie can't get another managerial job. I don't understand that. It's the same reason why Mark Jackson can't get a head coach. No, it ain't the same reason that Mark Jackson can't get a job. It's not the same reason. It ain't the same reason that Mark Jackson can't get a We know why Mark Jackson can't go in. Mark got a lot of skeletons in their closet. He got a lot of skeletons. He talked about about management and their, I'll say, off-the-court activities. But let me get back to, yeah, what we're talking about. But all (laughs) these managers, give, give all these managers their due for knowing their personnel and and being smart 
with doing that. Like I said, Tampa can play the opener game and they can shuttle anybody in their bullpen wherever. That's the scary thing about them. And they don't need to get a lot of runs. If that offense can maybe get three runs and their pitching is on, they're probably going to win most of those games. They won the most one, one run games this year. I mean, that's how the Royals won the world series a few years back. Yeah. Is having very good starting pitching and playing great defense and manufacturing runs when they had to. That Royals team didn't have a bunch of bashers on that squad. I mean, they played baseball, and that's the whole thing. He's like, you can still win playing station to station, um, positional baseball, hit and run, base stealing, etc. And then, like you said, with the other managers, you still have to give them credit for getting there. But like you said, getting back to the Dodgers. You know, the same questions are going to creep up with Dave Roberts. The same questions that were creeping up about Aaron Boone are the same ones that are creeping up about Dave Roberts. And please don't let it be that scenario that you explain that the Dodgers play Houston and Houston wins and it's a former Dodger who they could have conceivably hired as a manager beats them. Oh, it's, heads are going to roll. If that happens, Roberts is gone. And – and um, the uh, to me, the other – right now, the four managers are still in it. The one that's got the most pressure is Dave Roberts. He's got Absolutely. the most pressure. Brian Snicker, he's fine. Given how the Braves had to overcome, you know, the, the drafts fiasco because one of their players, Jiwon Bay, is, in, is with Pittsburgh system because he was in, in Greensboro. Snicker's fine. Snicker's fine. The Braves are ahead of schedule. They are. Braves fans, look – down here, laws. Look, we saw it when they had that run with the Big Four. They won with all those division titles in a row. Look, as long as as long as the Braves are in the mix, fans down here are going to be all right. Now they might get delusions of grandeur, if, especially if they don't win tonight. They they're not winning. <laughs> they're not winning Game Seven if they lose tonight. I'm just telling you right now, um, because you're up three one. Nah, you you got to knock them out. But but like you said, the Braves are a little bit ahead of schedule, but. Having looked at both their AAA and AA, Braves are going to be fine. Braves are going to be Braves are going to be in the mix. And like I said, their two best players, they locked them into those long-term deals. Their second baseman and Acuna, they're they're straight. Braves are going to be all right. Um, Tampa, you know how Tampa is. Tampa is going to be in the mix in some way, shape, or form. Uh, the Astros, they still have their core players. Not quite sure what they have in their minor leagues, but if they have. Baker around for, for, you know, at least, you know, the standard three year, four years, and they still have their keys of Correa and, um, and they can grab a pitcher and they, and as long, and you know, it's going to happen, even though some of these players are rightfully so bashing them for, you know, that scandal, if they win and then people are like, you had to win under that type of scrutiny. Hmm, there might be something to y'all. So don't be surprised. Winning changes a lot of stuff. And checks cashing without state taxes helps too. Oh yeah, Texas, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so now, like I said, the team that's going to be under the biggest scrutiny is, you know, clearly is Los Angeles. And if the if they don't win it. Roberts is gone, and especially on top of that, the investment they've already made in bets. Not only what they had to get, had what they had to give away to trade him, I mean, get him. Verdugo is one of those guys that was part of that depth in their mix, but he's got the the largest extension on record and is the number two salary behind Mike Trout. So it's like we, and then you know Kershaw's still on his deal. So you've got you've got all these keys to the castle and you can't win and we've invested 
And like you said, we've invested with this margin for error. Think about who they got rid of. They got rid of um, their lefty who was with um, Toronto. So it's like the Dodgers have all the pieces to win. And if they don't do it, Roberts is gone. And I'll tell you what, and I'll go ahead and say it. If Boone doesn't win it next year, the clamoring is going to be worse. And, and you got to ask what Cashman is doing and what Steinbrenner's doing. Like, like I'll say this. As a Yankees fan, even though you didn't always like George Steinbrenner meddling, you like the fact that we're supposed to win World Series. That's what we're in here for. Bump it. We're supposed to win. And then when he finally backed off, you know, they had the suspension. Gene Michael got to do so much. Gene Michael, I get that was really the rebirth when Steinbrenner was out because the baseball people were allowed to do what they were supposed to do. Gene Michael did a good job because he was responsible for signing Derek Jeter and signed for all those guys. He signed Maybe all those the O'Neill deal to get for Roberto the Kelly O'Neal for Paul O'Neill. O'Neal was one of the best. That was for Roberto Kelly. That was one of the best deals because O'Neill blossomed. Um, and, um, you know, then it was, you know, after stick, we talked earlier, um, Bob Watson, one of the good deals he made, Charlie Hayes at third base, you know, playing the, the, the platoon with Boggs and he gave mm-hmm. Boggs a load money deal. Wasn't a huge deal. And that was, they were really smart about that with the vets. Then remember they weren't giving vets. They stopped giving them those five and six year deals. They were giving the guys like three, three year. Deals. Yeah. And, and getting versatility out of guys. Exactly. So, um, then you think about, you know, the wetland deal, which oh. was the bridge for them because remember Rivera came up as a Rivera star. was the setup guy. Rivera came up as a starter. They realized he only had one. Rivera came up as a shortstop. Actually, he did. And they put him, they put him, they thought he was a starter. And there was one start he had, he struck out like 12 people in five minutes. Once people only realized he had one pitch, it's like, we need to put you in the bullpen. And then remember it was Wetland, you know, it was that duo, Wetland and Rivera. People don't realize how important Wetland was. Because people forget too, John, for those who forget, when the year baseball went on strike, John Wetland was the closer for the Expos mm-hmm. when they had the best record in baseball. The Yankees had the best record in the American League. Expos had the best record in baseball. That that Expos team, to this day, is still one of the greatest teams I've ever seen. Play that baseball. Expos team is the greatest team that never got a shot to show what they could do. And also during that season, remember, Gwynn was flirting with 400. Yep. He was batting but, 392, I think, when the season ended. They were – it was past – it was because the strike happened around August, the break. August 11th, my birthday. Okay. The season shut down on my birthday. See, happy birthday. <laughs> yeah, that sucked, man. But, but getting back to, like I said, with the Yankees building and structure, it's like you said, when, when Steinbrenner's out, Michael's able to get things stable. Then Watson took it a step further. And like I said, I give Cashman credit – because the Yankees minor league system is still one of the better ones now, and they're doing a better job of holding on to their talent. But like I said before, that like we both said, the biggest thing the Yankees have not fully addressed has been their starting pitching. Um, and um, like I said before, Cole did what he was expected to do. Cole's the real deal. You hope Severino can come back and be that number two. But you do need a left-hander or two to break up, you know, the right-handed mix. So is Montgomery going to be that guy? Are they going to bring back Paxson? Are they going to look at who they can promote? 
Are they going to look at some of their surplus? Because think about Miguel Andujar, was, who is an all-star, now doesn't have a place to play. He doesn't. And if you think about – and another thing, another key for the Yankees, and I'm like, give the man what he wants, is DJ LeMayhew. That was only you cannot lose LeMayhew. Cannot do it. That was a two-year deal, and nobody – Come on, LeMayhew led the team in RBIs from the leadoff spot in 2019. Dude hit, like, what, 350? LeMayhew can hit, and he can, he plays a steady second base. You can put him at third if you need to, put him at first if you need to. So the biggest question – the probably – obviously the biggest question mark is the Yankees need to figure out their starting rotation. But the second thing is LeMayhew. If they don't sign LeMayhew, there'll be a riot. There'll be a riot if they don't resign him. The, the Yankees have to resign him, and they have to look at some of these surplus pieces. Andujar doesn't technically doesn't really have a position. You can't he and and some team will need a bat that could play third base or first base, or maybe put him in the outfield or DH. So Andujar, you have to. I hate to say you have to consider moving him. And like you said earlier, Sanchez is a big question mark because the other catcher is not a bad bat is a much better defensive player. So there's a team that can use a bat. I try to ship him to the National League so I don't see him. Right. Just like, you know, just like they let Batances walk and he signed with the Mets because Batances, what, can't stay healthy. Um, so, so the Yankees, like I said, they've got to resign LeMayhew. They may have to look at Andujar and Sanchez as bargaining pieces in order to get – even if they can get a number three starter, a starter that you know can you can pencil them in for six innings, give up two or three runs, and keep that offense, you know, keep keep it intact. Another thing is going to be you know your outfield situation because to me, the players that need to be playing out in the outfield right now, based on the roster, would be Frazier in left. He's improved his defense. Hicks in center. He hit right. better during the postseason because he's a lot healthier. Judge and right and Stanton needs to be your DH. And the now problem you is to... Stanton, you can't DH him every night. That's the problem. They you can't can, do it. But you can rotate that DH. You can have him play left field. I hate having him play left though. He's so I am not he's here's the thing with Stanton. Stanton Stanton, we have to realize this joker is about as big as Judge is, number one. He is maybe bigger. Maybe he, I'm going to say this. Stanton is an average glove. He actually quietly has an above average arm. He really does. He's not bad at all. He's not gold glove, but he's not going to burn you either. But like you said, you can't hide him at, D, at DH all the time. It might be something where one game in the field, two games in DH. One game in the field, two games at DH. So you have to rotate them. But a, a question is in the, for the outfield depth, you know, Gardner. Gardner's the last link to the, to the championship team. He can be a number four outfielder. Like 2019, that was a surprise because no one was expecting that from Gardner. This year, most of the short season, but then he started picking up his pace. But, you know, like I said, it was almost like the midseason. So, those, to me, the two biggest pieces that they're going to have to figure what they're going to do with will really be, to me, Sanchez and Andujar. And I would not be surprised if those two are traded to help strengthen the starting rotation. I would love to see them try to figure out – I mean, there's no way that when his option comes up that um, – that uh, um, 
uh, Stanton turns it down. He's going to pick up that option because nobody's going to pay him that kind of money. Oh, um, exactly. But and, I, and there's no one who's going. The Yankees would have to pay somebody to take them take him off their hands. And that's why the two moves that that I wish that Cashman had been stronger about. And I don't think he made those moves on his of his own volition. One is the Rodriguez, which we know was pushed by the Steinbrenners. I, mm-hmm. I never thought giving Rodriguez the extension made sense. It didn't, you know, once he was done, they should have just let, let, washed their hands of it because I've always felt that the Yankee, the, the Yankees biggest problem has not been accumulating enough stars. They can always do that. It's having enough of the role player guys and the, the teams that were great during that run of the late nineties. That's why you could have a Scotty Brocious at third base because nothing got past him as a defender, but in the postseason, he gave you enough of a stick that he counted that you couldn't pitch around him. Right, they had and so you didn't hitters. need an Alex Rodriguez type. I didn't, you didn't need 40 home runs at third base. Give me 25 home runs at third base. Give me 20 home runs. But make sure you're, you're, you're playing great third. It's, Rodriguez just brought too much stuff to the table, it felt like to me. And that's the same with Stanton. You bring the expectation of a $40 million guy who's going to give you 40 home runs. Well, that's fine and dandy, but you can't keep striking out 200 times when you're behind another guy who strikes out 150 times and, a, and you're in front of a guy who strikes out 120 times. It just it, – it can't work that way. You can't be that boom or bust. And that's the problem for me with Stanton is, like, you get, you're getting Reggie Jackson without the Reggie Jackson. That's kind of big because even Reggie would bat 270, 280. But that's what I'm saying. But you got <laughs> yeah. the 270 from Reggie – but then when it's time, Reggie was Reggie. You know what I'm saying? Like, we were not oh, getting when, when, that out of Stanton. Well, not- I'll say this. I, I, I'm going to say this in Stanton's defense. This postseason, he actually had – He was had, very good. He was he very, very good. He arguably – this was probably hands down his best postseason and to a degree kind of carried that offense. So, he, he – it's going to be very rare for me to see someone to show up in the postseason on a Jackson level, a Jeter level. Heck, Brian Doyle <laughs> from 78, who was an afterthought and batted like over 400 in that World Series against the Dodgers. But Stanton did a better – he did his best – this was by far his best postseason, and he had he made his presence felt. But would you say that he's earned – the money that he's like, Hey, you get paid what people give you. And there's no, like, I'm not on his, but for what the Yankees thought that they were going to get, I didn't like the deal from jump. Cause no one can give you that. No one can justify that in the minds of what you, the expectation is when you put on those pinstripes, no one could live up to that. And he has not been, I mean, he's I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to say this first off. Remember it was Miami that signed him to that long-term deal. Yes. And it's a world of difference playing in Miami than it is in New York. That's the first thing. I think his, his first year in New York was, what, 2017? Yes. He did a very good job during the regular season, and during the postseason, he found out postseason's world of difference. 2018, injuries. 2019, injuries. This year, even in the short season, even though he trimmed down, injuries. But it's like you said, you can only, if they're willing to pay you that, it's hard to turn it down. But that was Miami. Give, of all people, Derek Jeter a lot of credit of getting rid of that. Like when Jeter was purging all that stuff with, with Stanton, Yelich, 
you know, Asuna. You're like, what on earth are you doing? And but but I now based on how that team did this year, and then he brought back he brought a former Yankee in Mattingly. It's like who's and who's managed in a big market with the Dodgers. Cheater probably knows a little bit more than what we give him credit for. Now he's not I mean, great, he's, the greatest at public relations, but yeah, baseball wise, Jeter has been smarter than I think than people give him credit for. So we'll see more about this team when it's a full 162 game season. But the way that they're going, and they actually made a good deadline deal getting Starling Marte. So they got it. They needed offense. They got another bat, and he's a solid defender. You know, can steal bases. Um, but, yeah, like we said, but getting back to, to our team, the Yankees, like I said to me, to keep it simple, priority number one, you need at least one more, if not two starters, okay? Number two, to me, your two biggest bargaining chips are going to be Sanchez because you can do the narrative of he needs a change of scenery and Andujar because Andujar can play, but he's not going to get any playing time at first with vote at third with Ruchella. You don't know if he can really play outfield, and if he can, you know, based on how Frazier's done the last two years, you you there's no space. There's no space, and if the and, and so you you figure your your starting team is going to be vote. Obviously, they got to resign Lemayhew. That's huge. Torres, yeah. Urshela, Frazier, Hicks, Judge, Stanton. And I'd go ahead and go with the other catcher, even though you're going to lose a little bit of offense, you can get around that because he's a solid defensive player. And, and that's can, not their problem. Scoring runs is never going to be their problem. It's going to be scoring is going to be the problem manufacturing when they, when they, when they're still long ball reliant. And even that lineup is still going to be long ball reliant, but if you kind of, and I know they're focused on the saber metrics and whatever, but to me, People that need to probably be hitting higher in the batting order are going to be obviously LeMahieu. You have to if Hicks is hitting, you have to put Hicks. You to me, it's like I know the argument: your best hitter should be batting second because he gets the most at bats. But I'm like, you need to get people on base. And right now, to me, the the two players that can probably get on base for the Yankees the, the best are going to be LeMahieu and probably Hicks when he's right. So those two, to me, probably need to be at the top of the lineup. Then you can have your bashers, Judge, Stanton, Vote, Glaber Torres, and then round out the line – I mean, Frazier, and then round up the bottom of the lineup with your Shelob and um, your catcher with the assumption that you're going to move Sanchez. Um, and that will be an offense that can still bash, but at least if, you know, you still have people at the top of the order that can make contact – and what have you, and then people at the bottom order that can make contact. And now you've got all those ducks on a pond. You can bring them in. All right, two more questions before we go. Sure. Um, number one, of the four now, uh, we've talked about this, the final four in MLB. Who do you think does win the World Series? Okay, based on the current teams, I'm going to go ahead and go on a limb and say it's going to be Los Angeles and Houston that are in. And because it's a great storyline – 
Houston wins. <laughs> I hate to, I hate to say either, it. Either option is bad. I don't care. You know what I mean? As a Yankees I mean, fan, I don't care. But like real talk, I I think <laughs> I hate to say it. It'll be Houston versus Los Angeles. The former Dodger does in his team because I mean I don't I don't, I don't like the Dodgers. I don't like Houston. But they're not Boston, so it's like as long as Boston sucks, I don't care. <laughs> Out of the two, I would much rather the Dodgers never win anything ever again. If you have to ask me between the Dodgers and the Astros, I could stomach the Astros winning another World Series. I don't ever want to see the Ast- the, the the Dodgers win anything ever. I don't <laughs> like the Dodgers. Uh, I, like you know, and and. This, you know, this is my life. So my dad was born in 1950. So this is when every black person in America was a Dodgers fan. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> they moved, exactly. And, and, <laughs> so my dad grew up a Yankees fan. So I've been a Yankees fan. I don't care. I, I, if it ain't a B on there, I don't know who them Dodgers are. And even if there was a B, I'd still hate them for that too. Hey, um, like I said, is they, I don't like them, but they ain't Boston. <laughs> and that's it. Boston True. still sucks. I don't care. Yes. All right, so then for my last one, then this is for us as as you can only use players you actually saw wear the pinstripes. You can't, mm-hmm. can't throw in, you know, Babe Ruth. You can't right. throw in Joe DiMaggio. Give me your Yankee 10. So uh, 11. Starting pitcher, closing pitcher, nine, and a DH. Okay. Dag, starting pitcher – that one's tough, but I, you know what? I would, I would go with, as corny as it sounds, Ron Guidry, because I remember the whole Louisiana Lightning and then how he transformed to the Bayou Baffler. I'd say Ron Guidry as my starter. Closer would have to be Rivera, but a close second was Goose Gossage. I, I grew up during that time. Okay, so now my nine in the field. At catcher, Thurman Munson. First base, gosh, I, I, dag, I'm There's just trying choices. to think. There's some choices. There's some choices. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you who. Actually, now I'm just drawing some blanks on some first bases. Corny as it sounds, I'm gonna go with Chris Chambliss. He was an underrated fielder. You Chambliss over clutch. Mattingly, over Tino, over. You know, like I'm change that to Mattingly because Chambliss is the first person I name. I change it to Mattingly, Mattingly, and no, but Chambliss was who I grew up with. Um, but then you look at it, Mattingly. I just blanked out from it. Come on, old age, old age. But Mattingly at first base, second base. Gosh, I grew up watching Willie Randolph play. Um, I saw the Chuck, Chuck Knobloch situation where he couldn't make throws from second base. <laughs> Remember, Steve, um, the Yankees are probably the only team to have two guys who went through that because Steve Sachs had it. Sachs for a while. had it too. Sachs and, then he, it. Right, and it was, you know, he got traded for Willie. That was the weirdest thing is that Steve Sachs and got Willie Randolph get Randolph. traded for each other. And then they traded him to Chicago. But you know what? I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say second base, probably Robinson Cano. I'll, I'll go ahead and go Cano. Shortstop, no question, Derek Jeter. Um, third base, Gosh, I grew up with Greg Nettles playing third. We've seen A-Rod. Um, Stats-wise, it would be A-Rod, but I'll tell you who I'm going to go with at third base, Brocious, because of his character. I okay, love Brocious. Now the outfield. Reggie Jackson has to be in the outfield, definitely. 
Um, other outfielders, gosh, I remember Mick the Quick. Mickey, I remember Mickey Rivers. I remember Oscar Gamble being out there. Um, but you have to put Dave Winfield out there. Definitely. Dave now Winfield. you only got one outfield spot left. You got Reggie and Winfield. No, I already said not, Reggie. Huh? I already said Reggie. Yeah. So, so Reggie. two guys, people who don't remember, Reggie and Dave Winfield did not get along. Oh, they didn't like each other. Not at all. And then remember the Yankees moved him after 81 to the uh, – To, to the, the Orioles. No, they moved him to the Angels. Remember Jackson – No, no Reggie was – no, Reggie came from the Orioles. That's right. You're right. He came right. from the Orioles, Orioles after the 76 season. Then after the 81 with the Angels, season, yep. they, he signed with – they forced him out to the Angels because they wanted to build around Winfield. Which is weird because then when Winfield hurts his back, he gets traded to the Angels. So I thought he was with Toronto before. Nope, he got traded to the Angels. Remember, That's he was right. he got number 32 for the Angels, which – oh. But then he, he, he did win a ring with Toronto, though. He did. Yes, he won it with Toronto. Yes. So, all right, so I've already said um, – gosh, I've already said Jackson. I've already said Winfield. So, you, gosh, have, an out, you have an outfield spot and your DH. You know what I'll do? I know this is terrible. I'm going to go outfield, Bernie Williams, and DH, Paul O'Neill. Because <laughs> – I, I think not only just the stats, but I think but the presence and what they just brought, you know, to that team. Like, Williams was just the smooth assassin, and O'Neal was that, for lack of a term, that hothead that they needed. Now, I know I'm leaving some players out. and even No, but this the- is just – you only get you only get so many spots, and I got favorite no, players that I got to leave off. All right, I'm gonna so give you mine. Let, so you let me hear your eleven because I struggled, but let me hear your eleven. Okay, so my starter is El Duque. He's my favorite Yankee starter okay. of all time. Okay, I think you know for one game, I, I I'll let El Duque go out there and rock it for me. Okay. Um, my closer is Mo, but my my close second is Dave Rigetti. Remember Rags? I remember. And Rags, Rags was the best closer Rags, in baseball for about three years. He was a very good starter. Yeah, he threw a no-hitter as a starter. No-hitter. He's a very good starter. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, and, uh, so Rags would be my second there. But, yes, my, my battery is, is – I mean, my, my pitchers are El Duque and Mo. Behind the plate, um, I have to <laughs> oh, – the catcher position is the hardest one for me. Because the Yankees have had a bunch of different guys, and I uh, and, like I kind of don't want to miss out on putting like a Jim Laritz in there because I love Jim Laritz <laughs> and that weird batting stance and the fact that he, you know without Jimmy Laritz we don't beat the Braves in '96. That's the whole Jimmy Laritz starts the whole comeback in '96. Um, but I guess a catcher. I mean, it's all. Oh, I mean, they even had Mickey. T- I mean, there's so many catchers Yankees went through. Um, it's fine. I, I have the clock. You have back. <laughs> you so, um, so I guess that catcher, you know, I go with Jorge. I'll go with Jorge. Jorge. Okay. Right. We'll out of there. At first, it's Donnie baseball because that's that's I, I, watching Don Don Mattingly hit was just that year when he and Winfield went down to the wire for AL MVP was just one of my favorite things ever. Um, second base. Um, for some reason, I can't help it, but I pick Fonz. I got to think Alfonso Soriano. Yeah, I, I, he just, I loved watching him. I think all the frustration. I think 
because they shuttled him eventually to the outfield, and that's one of the guys. But Soriano was just a very was a very good player, definitely. Yeah. And I, I just you know yeah, I just I loved watching him play. I loved that he he the energy that he brought to the game every night. Um, shortstop, yeah, it's Jeter. That's no question. Third base. Brocious the same as me. I love Scotty Brocious. You can't tell me nothing bad about Scott Brocious. I don't care that he batted 220 one year. I don't care. I don't care. The man, the man was always there when the Yankees needed him. Uh, right field is Winfield. Center field is – see, this is where I have to make it weird because my lineup – because I have to put – I have to put Ricky in left. I have to. That's Ricky's my dude. Mm-hmm. Ricky, as far as I'm concerned, Ricky Henderson is the th- one of the three greatest ball players I ever got to see. He's in that group with Barry Bonds and Ken Griffey Jr. Just like the three best ball players total that I ever saw. Ricky's one of them. Um, so Ricky's in left. So in center now, I have this weird group of players that I would like to throw in there. Okay, and sure. I'm trying to figure out who I would put in center. Mm-hmm. And because I have to put Reggie as my DH. Because mm-hmm. I can't put Reggie in the field. I, 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 he's a terrible outfielder. Just an off outfielder. So I put Reggie <laughs> at DH. So now it's center. I have a lot of really good choices that I could take, but I feel like I end up having to go with with, with Bernie. But because the, the thing I loved about Bernie the most was when the Yankees were doing the finally getting to the ascension. When they about to play the Rangers every first round. Yeah. <laughs> and Bernie was that like 500. <laughs> With, he with did Bernie. punish those Rangers. Since Rangers <laughs> had some good squads with Juan Gonzalez and you know, but even, Bernie for some just, reason, when he just, saw the Rangers, just punished them. And that those those were the things that really because I you know we we we, we went what eleven years? What how long did we go? Fourteen years between playoff appearances. Yeah, because they made the World Series in 81, lost to the Dodgers, and they didn't make the postseason until 95. And that's when right. they lost to Seattle. Which, which to me is still one of the most heartbreaking losses um, of a series that I ever had experienced because the next year they win it and Mattingly is on the coaching staff yeah, because and he's not on the bad. field. Well, to me, I'm sorry, as a side note, 2004, that was the worst. I don't even think about that one. I don't want to talk about that anymore. It, I'm sorry. I, it, that was the worst. It's all Rodriguez, man. It's all Rodriguez. Um, A-Rod was a curse. Do you think, honestly, <laughs> honestly, look at this. Do you think any third baseman that they could have signed at that point over seven, eight years, they won one title. Any third baseman in the league they could have won one title with. I'm going to say this. When the Yankees made the trade for Rodriguez – and when they traded Alfonso Soriano, who was already a 40-40 guy, I'm like, first off, what position is this guy going to play? And then you, I, I, I'm going to say this. A-Rod, very good player, but the Yankees did not need him in order to win. What happened is, to me, like you alluded to, you lost some of your character people and because you had to put so much into – managing that and then of course the infamous Esquire article and you can't put salt on somebody when they've won more than you and they've won in a real market that's not knocking Seattle never been but Seattle ain't New York Seattle ain't Atlanta for crying out loud all right so 
Seattle's not DC. <laughs> and even when and even when he was with Texas, I mean, Texas Rangers finished last every year. I'm gonna put it like this: the ballpark at Arlington was a nice ballpark. I've been before. They moved to a new ballpark. Texas, all you got, you know, there's no there's no pressure on you at Texas. There's no there's really no expectation on you in Texas. There's not. New York, look, I'm not even a Mets fan. And we, you, I hear all the Mets fans complaining all the time. Why can't we win? So if the Met, if you get in heat playing with the Mets, and they ain't won nothing but what twice, basically. Yeah. I mean, what you think gonna happen when you're playing for the team that has the most World Series appearances and most World Series titles? Come on. And but I just—it was an '80s move in the 2000s. That was the Yankees. It, that was a move that did not need to happen. That was just a – that was – it was. It really it was. was. A F you to the, it was an F you to Boston. It was like, well, since you couldn't get it done, Steinbrenner, I think, at that point, or whomever was calling the shots as George got into his yeah, later because years. because he was almost going to go to Boston. They just did that to make sure Boston didn't yeah, get it. Fight. And it was like, honestly, I wouldn't have cared if the Red Sox had gotten Alex Rodriguez at that point. It wouldn't have bothered me. And I think a lot of Yankee fans and baseball people in general – Alex Rodriguez would not have turned the Red Sox into a better team than the Yankees. It just wouldn't, wouldn't have happened. Have. And what did it force the Red Sox to do? Be more creative in finding ball players who fit into what they were. You know what I'm saying? Like that Red Sox team that beat the Yankees in 2004 was very much reminiscent of the Yankees team in 96 and you know that exactly. type of group. They had, all the, they had all those characters. They had just enough clout with, with Ortiz but you had enough character people, you know, with Pedroia, with, um, you know, Damon, with all those guys you had. And what else did they have? They had good starting pitch. And look at who they're who at the top of the rotation. Hall of Famer and Pedro Martinez. And, a pretty and they were good. tough as balls. And then, like, that Yankees team in 96 was a tough baseball team. Those oh, were baseball I, I rem- players. Those were guys yeah. like – you know, the Rangers was on that team. Remember, they had the brawl against Baltimore. That's what galvanized their season. That home game against Baltimore, and they brought they, excuse my French, they beat the crap out of them in that brawl. And after that, they they just put a big middle finger up to everybody, like they really did. I mean, look at who the, who the guys. The Yankees basically had a different left fielder for most of those World Series wins. Whether it was Shane Ricky Lidey. Clay Bellinger's dad, basically. I mean, <laughs> was, different. It, they did, and they beat teams that had talent. But the, that te- those Yankees teams were what more heavily invested in their starting pitching too. They had starting pitching, definitely. Because when you can bring in a Doc Gooden as your fourth guy, you know, as your fourth starter, and and even the last years of David Cohen, and this is such Yankee specific shit right now, uh, but. Even with David Cohen, his last year at the Yankees, and he gave him that one relief appearance in the World Series, and it was just like a, it was magic. It was it, the, 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 I will never forget Cohen, and you could see it. Like when he let that last one go, you could see he's never throwing another pitch the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. And you know who else we forget? David Wells. And the funny yep. thing, all three of those guys pitching no hitters for the Yankees. Yep. David Wells. I mean, two of them pitch perfect games. Yeah, David Wells is a perfect game. David Cody Wells got a perfect game. And Wells got a perfect game. For the beer drinkers around the world. Where's Babe Ruth's cap? Where's yes. Babe Ruth's freaking cap? Yeah, you're crazy. Dude. 
I love those. Te- those teams had character. Those teams had character. They and were that's... not. The Yankees are always going to be more corporate than other teams, just because of who they are. But they were still character driven. Mm-hmm. And you could have the balance. And that's why I think the A-Rod to Jeter thing was always a a stupid conversation anyway, because Jeter never claimed to be the best shortstop in baseball. I never heard him say that. Jeter's goal always was, I'm trying to win as many rings as As Yogi Berra. I'm trying to catch Yogi Berra, because that's the guy who had the most in the Yankees. Look, Nick Swisher said it best when when the Yankees signed him, and he came over, and he's like, wow, it must have been a nice offseason not having to play. Jeter's like, that was the worst offseason. We're here to win championships. Jeter came to win. He was – Jeter was about winning. That's – I, that, I don't know if you remember that story where after he retired and people – you know, they had talked about how nobody really talked to Derek about his defense. Mm-hmm. And, like, two years before he retired, somebody started showing him where he could have gotten better defensively, and he was really upset with the Yankees in general. He's like, why didn't people come and talk to me? Mm -hmm. Because he wanted to be better. If he said, you know, if he felt like there's one thing I'm doing to hurt this team, tell me and I'll try to work on it. Because that's who Derek Jeter as a ball player is. I don't know the man. I can't (laughs) pretend to talk about him as a man. But as a competitor, he's that dude as far as I will do anything to get better. I will do anything to give my team an edge short of cheating but I will do anything. That's who he is. That's just how he's built because he is not the greatest at anything. There's not one thing that you would say Derek Jeter is the greatest at. He's not the greatest hitter of all time. He's not the most powerful player. He wasn't the best defensive player, but you've put all the things that he was together. That's, that's why he means so much. Yeah. He, he's not the heart, but he's the soul. You know yeah. what I mean? Like Jeter's not the guy to rah-rah you. He's not the guy to rally around. But, you know, Monday through Friday, Saturday and Sunday, he's going to show up. He's going to work hard. He's not going to make it harder for you to win. And that's, that's, that's all you're looking for out of most players. But to be as good as he was, and as, you know, and we could have, you know, I think in the NBA we have this argument, and people say, well, like, will LeBron win the championship? Is LeBron, does he belong amongst the greatest Lakers ever? And it's like, no. No, I mean, like, no, that's, that's not even, no. no. And it's the same if, if people, when people tell me that Derek Jeter is the greatest Yankee ever, I'm like, no, I love the Yankees. Jeter's not in the top 10. I, see, I, I would do this. I, I, would, I would probably, Jeter would be up there. Like, you can't not put him No, he's but he's not, not. He's not the top Yankee ever. Not Babe. He's not Lou Gehrig. He's not Yogi Berra, so you already got him behind those three. He's not Mantle. He's not Mantle. He's not um, DiMaggio, so that's five. We've already got – he's not Rivera, mm-hmm. right? So that's six. He's, he'd be in the top ten, though. Jeter would be in the top ten. Okay, we put him in ten. Okay, because – yeah. Okay, who else? Like when you think about Elston Howard, the Scooter, Phil Rizzuto. No, he's better I, than them. I would say he's better than Rizzuto and Howard. Even Roger though, Maris. He's better than Maris, better than Maris. And then you got to look at they didn't play their f- full careers with the Yankees. Jackson, Winfield. So you got to put Jeter in the top ten. Jeter's he's in, in the top, top ten. Okay, uh, top five is the way you get. Yeah, not he might five. not be top five, but he's definitely top ten. Yeah, yeah, right. There we go. That makes sense. That makes sense. That's well, you know, it's just like I was thinking back to my days as a kid when I said Chambliss. You're like, what about Mattingly? I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> 
But it's it's yeah. so it's when you have that kind of history with this with sports growing up, and you just you forget how many different eras your team has, mm-hmm. and they are so and they overlap so much because. I was one of those kids, and I'm sure you did it for the decade of the 80s, too. I had to keep holding on to the fact that, you know, the Yankees didn't go win any World Series, but they won more games than anybody else in the decade. They won more games than anybody else in the decade and, and only made the World Series one time. Because remember, in 1980, they had the best record, and Kansas City swept them, yep. basically. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'm excited um, for next season. I think baseball did some good things this year. Um, I'm still worried about Rob Manfred. Not a big fan of Rob Manfred as as the commissioner. I think he's is very short sighted in how he handles the sport. I don't think he's fully capitalized on this moment because here we are talking about a game seven and a game six on a Saturday in October, and the whole world is not focused on it. Though baseball is doing fantastic revenue wise, its its place in America is right now still too. It's too – I'm going to say this, and I know it's because of the diversity regarding, you know, your television options, but these games were on ABC, NBC, or CBS, basically. Unless you have these channels on your cable or Roku or Fire Stick or whatever, you're not seeing them, and that's terrible. Like, I could see the rotation of the first round, maybe being on TBS and that type of stuff, but after that – Man, it needs, to be on, it needs to be on your mainstream. That's where you can get your mainstream views. Because think about it. No one – I can't say no one follows college basketball, but everyone follows March Madness because guess what? It's on all the major channels. And even the most casual fan will go because you know you're going to see an upset somewhere. So, yeah, I mean, there's some things that they are being done well, but there's some things that could be done better. Because this is the time when stars get made. And baseball has a big problem as far as culturally. Who would you say is the most impactful baseball player in America? Like, if if, if you drop Mike Trout in the middle of your mall, no one will know who Mike Trout is. No one knows who he is. Baseball people know. But- Even most baseball people, though, wouldn't know what he looks like just walking around. But, yeah, the mar- obviously the biggest, the biggest thing with baseball, you know, is obviously the marketing. Because the thing is, you've got some great stories, you know, from people – they're from here, from other countries, et cetera. And like you said, this is, you know, anytime it's your playoffs, I like what the NHL has done. They're on NBC. I remember you had to either have the sports network or ESPN in order to see them. Now it's like they're showing the playoffs. I mean. And playoff hockey is fantastic. Oh, playoff hockey to me, <laughs> that is arguably of your major sports, the best postseason and you know the bitter irony is when a series is over after you've been beating each other's behind all day you gotta line up and shake hands with those cats like it's it's like it's blood sport and then once it's over okay it's 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 tough man but but hockey and that's one of the last sports to me where you can still just play the game. Now, of course, you can't swing and hit somebody in the head, but it's the, still the most physical. It to me is just so intense. Playoff hockey and Olympic hockey are my favorite of that sport. Uh, like mm-hmm. I love Olympic hockey. Um, and then the NHL still has the best trophy. The NHL is the best trophy. It's the, the, the Stanley Cup is the greatest trophy in all of sports. It's, there's nothing better. It's there is no. You don't get to have a copy of it. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's you can't fake it. 
there's they don't put five of them in. You got to return it, and they, everyone's name is on it forever, and they have to keep adding layers every time. Oh, I just love it. I love the Stanley Cup. And you get to keep it? Like, you get to go home with it for uh, – you get to have your own day with the cup? Mm-hmm. The NFL trophy, the, the NBA trophy, they are cool to take around with you. But you walk around with that Stanley Cup, you're going to be – And it's got all those, those winning players' names on it? That's right, right here. <laughs> that's me. You see me? You see me? That's, that's forever. No one can ever – I mean, like, Stanley Cup is forever. That's, that's, that's – it's the best. It's the best thing – I wish I like that's one of the things if I could be in a sport that I never played, I would love to have that moment of skating around the rink at the end of a Stanley Cup final with that, Man, that holding it above my head. I'd skate for a little bit. Dude, <laughs> dude, that that seems better than anything else. You know what I mean? Like everything else is if you win the World Series, that's a team thing, and but you sh- and that moment goes to the stars. Same with football, same with basketball. In the NHL everybody gets their opportunity mm-hmm. to skate around the building holding that, that cup. Mm-hmm. And everybody gets to take it home for their day with the cup. It's the most it's, – it's just – that if you want to talk team stuff. That's the most team. That's, that's the best. It doesn't get me better than that, man. I don't have to be the MVP. I don't have to be – I. it's my cup too. It's my cup too. And I'm not here. You know, they can't just put, they don't put just the MVP's name. It's every guy who skated is going to be on this forever. And I, I just, the for hockey and baseball, I think they need to find a way to regenerate some more of that love for the postseason because it's just different. It, it is just different from when we were younger and we learned the game. Mm-hmm. Baseball playoffs meant something there was something about hearing the first call of the playoffs. You know, when you heard Vince Scully's voice, or you heard Joe Buck, or you heard, you know, I mean, um, you know, Jack Buck, excuse me at the time. Uh, it, you heard those voices and they let you know that you were about to watch a serious thing. This meant something. I, you know, like when we talk about that 88 series, when the Dodgers beat the Mets in the NLCS, and that was the last great Mets team that, cause the next year, Dale Strawberry was gone, you know, the, the Doc was, yeah, Doc started. Everybody, it was like it's all just all those guys, you know, were gone. But I remember how much that series meant, you know. And we were firmly in a Super Bowl era. We were firmly in the NBA Jordan ascending. Eighty-eight Jordan is is there. He's a star. The Lakers are winning championships still. The Pistons are the football. I mean, that's the eighty-eight is what? Who's? I think the Giants won the Super Bowl that year in eighty-eight. Sometimes, so, like, no, eighty six like, yeah. was Giants. Eighty six, eighty eight was. Might have been the Niners. That might have been like the Niners. Maybe like the Cincinnati, San Fran. Yeah, that might have been that, that one. Yeah. one. When John Taylor scored the. Yeah, because they won back to back eighty eight and eighty nine because they beat the Broncos. They beat Denver. They they torched yep. Denver. That was the John Taylor Super Bowl. I would. I, I mean, I just I would love to see baseball get that back because I think there is, especially for African Americans, and I I, I, I rap on this. I, I love. Baseball is a sport that has always been a lot to the African-American community in this country. It was where we got a lot of our first hour. People have to remember, like, really, the only two sports that blacks could play initially. You could be a jockey because go look at the Kentucky Derby. Oh, I know. The Derby was started by – yeah. A a lot of people don't know how – that they actually banned black jockeys from (laughs) riding because they were too successful. So so it was either boxing – Horse racing or baseball. That's what we had. That's and it. that connection with baseball 
goes beyond Jackie Robinson. It goes beyond those things because it was our first sense of ownership too in, in having black ownership of sports teams and also in a lot of cooperative economics to keep those teams alive, the sharing of players and, and sustaining the Negro leagues. And that, that passing on of tradition was in there, that passing on of culture. That was the expression of that game is very similar to what you see in Latin American ballparks and Korean ballparks today. That was very much the atmosphere of what it was to be in a Negro League ballpark. Mm -hmm. Baseball is so sanitized and, and has pushed a lot of that out. I'm glad to see kids like Fernando Tatis Jr., to see his, uh, Xander Bogarts, to see these younger players who are now embracing the character again and hopefully they bring the attention of younger people back to it because that's what sold us on the game. The Ricky Henderson's, the Ken Griffey juniors, the, all, there were all those types of players who were bigger than the game well, that were part that, of everyday life. And real quick, that's why when you look at nothing minor, I was very deliberate. I'll be blunt. I'm very, I was very deliberate with who I interviewed for those very reasons. Optics aren't everything, but there's something. So when you're seeing a piece of yourself in some of these other spaces and places, and you can say that through the lens of what you do, you know, through sports journalism, optics mean something. And whatever we're able to do from what we were reporting on, what we write about, those are the ways to bring those back and to keep, keep pushing the narrative. Seriously, got to. Man, tell the folks how they can get the book. Tell them okay. how they can follow you. Tell them what you're up to. Awesome. Well, again, this is the cover, uh, Nothing Minor, 2019 Summer Journey Covering Minor League Baseball. Again, it's looking beyond the game action. It's the photography. It's the interviews. It's the insert on the Negro Southern Leagues Museum in Birmingham. You can get that online through Barnes & Noble as well as Amazon, and there will be more retailers coming out. Uh, the best way to get in contact with me on Facebook, if you add the author page, author Andrew Snorton, so A-U-T-H-O-R-A-N-D-R-E-W-S-N-O-R-T-O-N, you can reach me there. On Twitter and Instagram, author A. Snorton, those will be the best ways. You may email me at authoracenorton at gmail.com, YouTube, author A. Snorton, and the business site, asnortoncs.com, and then click on the menu for author. It'll give you all the info, and you can go to my landing page, subsite, whatever you want to call it. But, um, David, I'm very grateful for the time we've been able to talk, um, just really not only about the book, but, you know, about other related sports pieces. Um, please keep doing the great work that you're doing. To all your viewers and listeners out there, I tell you what, you know, hard in the paint, Look, he he goes hard. He asks the hard questions, but he's doing it for a reason. So continue to support the show. Uh, continue blessings with everything. I'll have to get you back on my show again. I'm, I'm very grateful that you were able to block off time on that. But seriously, thank you so much. Continued blessings to you, your family, your viewers, your listeners, all of you all. Seriously, please take very good care. Man, I appreciate you. You know that. Um, and you've been in my corner since even before I started to do this. Like I said, I was just a pup when we met. And uh, <laughs> I don't know what I did to let y'all let me hang around. I don't know why y'all decided to be nice to me. But um, you and the fellas, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I'll shout them out for you. The, the Zayda chapter of Alpha Phi Alpha Incorporated. I am not a member 
but these were my friends and they embraced me even though I was not a brother um, to them in that way. They have treated me like brothers, um, like a brother since then. And these were dudes that were either, some of them were gone already and I have become friends with um, over the years because they've always looked out for me. And, and I, like I said, I don't know why, but they've been kind to me. <laughs> I would tell you, I would tell you why, because it was, it was the right thing to do. I'll tell you what, and I'll say this because I know we got our, we got our stuff to do, but I'll say this. Your character comes through in what you do. And that's all that needs to be said. So whether you've been at the top of your game or like all of us have had some bad days or off days, you know, your character has always come through. And that's why people who went to school with you or didn't go to school with you, that's why the people around you, your character has consistently come through in all that you do. And um, hey, that's all she wrote. <laughs> now you got me feeling all, all my man. No, but again, thank you. You are my brother, man. I appreciate it. And, and um, um, you know, we will continue to talk offline as we do and continue to support each other as we do. And, um, you know, my best to you as you do all the things that you do both in the community and, and as you say, as a reporter um, and as a, as a writer, you, you've done, I got to participate in one of the other pieces too. And, and, and yeah. um, I was really uh, glad to be able to contribute there as well. So, you know, anytime you need me, I'm there. And, um, and, and I know I understand the same in return. Hey, until next time, bro. All right. So that has been another edition of Hard to Pain with David Grubb. I will be back tomorrow. Uh, maybe not the same time, but the same place. So until then, y'all be cool. Peace.